0: Specialist, it it it
1: fight the Brothers, remember, it's a time for an awakening on Black Talk. By getting it an understanding Again, welcome to the program this evening With your hosts, Brother Elliot And Brother Richard The number to reach us to get involved In the conversation this evening Is 215-490-9832 That's 215-490-9832 We're streaming live audio at several locations You can go to timeforanawakening.com Which is the home page And catch the live stream at that location, you can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash Time for an Awakening. Again, that's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash Time for an Awakening. And the live stream will be playing there also. You can go to abitumi.com. That's dot com forward slash Time for an Awakening. They stream from Ghana. Or you can download the TuneIn Radio app to any of your devices. TuneIn Radio is a free radio app. In that TuneIn search engine, just type in Time for an Awakening. There you'll see the icon, and you can stream the program live, even into your car if you have the Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, that's Time for an Awakening Radio program. With the live stream on the TuneIn app, drop us an email at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Again, that's timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Time for an Awakening also has a fan page on Facebook. In that Facebook search engine, you can type in Time for an Awakening Radio Program. There you'll always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or a Brother Richard. And do me a favor before you leave that page, just hit that like button. It's Time for an Awakening Radio Program with the fan page on Facebook and Time for an Awakening Media is also there. Always follow the, la- the latest podcasts of the various programs on Time for an Awakening Media. Interesting articles that you can read, download at later times, and share with your friends. And also check out that Time for an Awakening Marketplace in our partnership with the bb to me Always interesting things in the marketplace all the time. Uh, various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social systems, health, and much, much more, being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora. So again, make that one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. That's timeforanawakening dot com. dot com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening Media. It's seven oh seven here on this uh, cold Sunday evening. <laughs> It's cold Sunday evening here in uh, Philadelphia, the January the 21st edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guest this evening in conversation is the chair of the African Studies Program and associate professor of political science and Islamic Studies Institute at McGill University in Canada, Dr. Khalid Mustafa Madani, is scheduled to join us this evening. His book, Black Markets and Militants, the informal networks in the Middle East and Africa, but he's here to discuss the humanitarian crisis in Sudan, give us a little historical background on the area, and give us his observations on what's behind this whole situation and the humanitarian crisis in the Sudan. We'll be right back to get the program started, and hopefully i guess he'll be joining us by then. After a brief word from our sponsors.
2: Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and and our enemies. Everybody is here.
1: with your host, Brother Elliot, Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m., for podcasting or live program scheduling. Hit us up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's 7.13 here in this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Before we get started with our program, I want to welcome in my co-host, Philadelphia activist and tour guided to African-American Museum here in Philadelphia at 7th and Arch Street. Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard.
9: Yes, sir, Brother Elliot. How are you, sir? Well, you know how that goes. The chill is on. You know, Elliot, I'm, I'm telling you, I really think they'd be playing with the weather because, uh, you know, all of a sudden it's now cold. I'm glad that it is getting cold, you know, I, I, even though I don't like it. But um, next week I hear it's supposed to go up, you know, to like 50 or something. So, I don't know, Willie. I just don't know. But I'm I'm also excited to um, be in conversation with our guest tonight, because you know the area um, that he's speaking to, and specifically around um, Sudan and what's happening in that area. Um, I'm not um, as intimately informed as I would like to be, in order for us to understand, you know, just where we sit at as in America in relationship to what may be going on in the Sudan, if there's any um, connection or interconnection. And I'm, I'm interested to explore that um, to see um, that besides other things,
1: you know, Richard, that, and in that statement you made is part of the problem for Africans, African-Americans, however you want to term it in the diaspora or African Africans on the continent that we have, have a distorted view some of our people of our history or we're not aware of it at all you know I'm glad tonight that we're talking about that area because that area that they now call the Sudan uh, the, the area of Egypt the area of Ethiopia around that horn of Africa around the, the, the northern portion in the almost central part of Africa is the cradle of civilization of government of laws And it's the origin of our, it's the land of our nativity. It's the origin of what we know as a people. But it's a lot of confusion going on there. Uh, you hear distorted, uh, when you do hear reports on the news here in the United States, you hear distorted versions of uh, of uh, warlords and, and warring factions. And we really don't know what's going on. Uh, I'm glad we have our guest on tonight to talk about the area. Give us a little historical background and talk about what's going on there now and the players or players involved. Our guest this evening, Chair of African Studies, the African Studies Program, and Associate Professor of Political Science and the Islamic Studies Institute at McGill University in Canada, Dr. Khalid Mustafa Adani is with us this evening. How are you, sir? Dr. Khalid, can you
10: hear me? Yes, I can. Um, thank you very much for having me on your show. It's a, it's a real honor to be with you and also uh, with your colleague. Um, it's, uh, I've heard a, a great deal about your show, so I really welcome this opportunity to talk about Sudan. And you're absolutely right. It has, goes, uh, has a very long history, and it's very, very important for African and black peoples in general.
1: Uh, listen, I'm glad to have you with us, Dr. Madani, with myself and Brother Richard on the Time for an Awakening program. Uh, Dr. Madani, before we get, uh, talk about what's going on now in the Sudan, in that area, uh, uh for our listening audience, let's get a little historical background. Let's go back and, and kind of bring it up. And you, you can take your time and, and point out different things in history of the development of what has been going on. But let's go on go back and, and talk about the Sudan uh the, the the original name uh the the people that were in the area Nubians the kingdoms there it just to kind of bring it up to the present day if you don't mind
10: Yeah of course, it's it's my pleasure and honor. Absolutely, you know I should say that I'm from Sudan and I'm also African American. So you have the the right person on this show, I hope. Oh, <laughs> um, here we go. That's oh yeah, I, I'm I'm African American. I, I I'm an American citizen. Have been for almost forty years. So uh, you know it's a, so I'm both. I just happen to live in Canada right now, so I should maybe I should start with that. <laughs> and uh, and the reason I, I'm starting with that is because. I know both as an African, as Sudanese, and as an African-American, that Sudan is extremely important. My own grandfather was a friend and colleague with uh, W.E. Du Bois, uh, believe it or not, <laughs> uh, from that uh, period of decolonization in Africa and, of course, for black liberation in the United States. So there is that linkage of people uh, between Sudan and uh, and African-Americans that uh, is a very, very important one. One of the reasons that link has always been so strong is, as you put it at the beginning of the show, my friend, um, you know, Sudan is the home of uh, uh, the earliest uh, African and black kingdoms of uh, uh, Meroe and Kush, of Nubia. Uh, these are, of course, uh, civilizations that uh, date back to uh, 3000 BC, um, and they are linked, of course, to the ancient Egyptian civilizations that consists of the early, middle, and late kingdoms. It is the middle kingdom, really, where the Nubians uh, dominated that part. But of course, as we know now from uh, Afrocentric historians and uh, the Senegalese historian Sheikh Anid Diop, I would recommend that your listeners read his wonderful work about Afrocentricity and how the pharaohs were actually black. And so, uh, as you said at the beginning of the show, the show, that's what Sudan is, geographically, historically, and culturally. And so it was named after the civilizations that uh, grew uh, along the banks of the Nile. Um, first, of course, uh, Kush and then Medawi. Uh, and then nearby, of course, was the Kingdom of Aksum, uh, which is today's Ethiopia. These are formidable uh, histories that not only contributed to black history and black people, but to the entire globe. It is, after all, these civilizations where uh, the Greek Hellenic civilizations emerged and borrowed from, yes. and then on to, of course, the European civilization. So I just want to make sure that's very, very important. I'd, you know, Someday, I hope a lot of your listeners go to visit, as I did recently, Egypt, to visit the pyramids, for example. I can even send you some some uh, some pictures. Uh, so uh, a lot of Africans and, uh, and black Americans have visited the Great Nile Valley to look at the monuments and the pyramids and the accomplishments. Of, uh, of what are today Sudanese. So that's the ancient history. Um, the history after that is a history where you had a combination of um, both um, Islamic and uh, non-Islamic groups that uh, begin to intermingle in what is called today Sudan, which was one of um, the largest countries in Africa, or or rather the largest one until it separated into two in in 2011. During that period, beginning in the 7th century, Sudan uh, became a mix of both African populations and Arab populations. Arab speakers came uh, as early as the 7th century um, along the Kingdom of Nubia, um, that at the time was actually Christian, not Muslim, and they intermingled and expanded uh, throughout that period, mostly through peace because it was mostly conducted through trade and Here is where the intermarriage and intercultural um, kind of uh, acceleration began. I say that is because, yes. that, uh, Sudan, because Sudan is distinct uh, of um, all of the African countries, and I want your listeners, um, especially black listeners, to understand um, they may be confused, because it's one of those countries that is both Arab and African, African and Arab, Muslim and non-Muslim, um, and that has been a peaceful process until the colonial of British came. The colonial British, um, as they did in every African country, interrupted that relationship which happened throughout Africa as you know the majority of Africans are actually Muslims and it's the fastest growing religion Um, I'm sure you've uh, talked to people who's been from Senegal or Ghana or uh, you know Nigeria or Mali or all of these Muslim African countries but it was really um, the colonial period that began in the 1800s the British came as they did to other countries and they colonized and dominated the country in the case of Sudan it's a land uh, of revolutions against occupation and imperialism. And by the mid-1800s, in the uh, 19th century, a man by the name of Muhammad Ahmed al-Mahdi, that many black Americans uh, scholars are familiar with, actually rose up in protest and revolution against British occupation. And he managed actually to expel the British for some time. Um, That was something that was extremely historical and is known to the Brits as well as Africans themselves. But what happened is that because the imperial and the colonial de- domain were so important and the region, Sudan, is so important strategically and continues to be because it, uh, it of course, borders Egypt, the Sahel region of West Africa, the Red Sea region, which is now uh, the center point of conflict in the world. Um, and for that reason, the British returned and reconquered Sudan in the early um, uh, 20th century. It is here that they implemented what they did, my brother, in all of the African countries, and that is divide and rule. They separated through administration and through their military the country into northern Sudan and southern Sudan, and decided to prevent, through law in the 1920s, any intermingling, uh, intermarriage, or any trade between the northern part of the country and the southern part of the country. That divided, of course, the Muslims and Arab speakers in the North from uh, many Christians and those who follow African traditions um, in the South. That policy of separating North and South, the divide and rule that they did in Nigeria, that they did in every single African country, of course, Uh, led to the result that in 2011 uh, you had the partition of South Sudan from North Sudan as a result of a long conflict and war between the two regions. Uh, Of course, a lot of that conflict had to do with the two uh, the leaders in both North and South. But the historical context of colonialism and divide and rule becomes a really important story your listeners should be aware of. So even the separation of Africa, what was then Africa's largest country, physically in territory, uh, had its roots in the machinations and imperialism and colonialism of of the British occupiers. This legacy continues as it does in African countries in different ways. Some African countries have resolved it, others have not. In the case of the Sudan, it uh, was the second after Eritrea African country to actually separate after the independence of the late 1950s and 1960s. Um, That's uh, the colonial history. The post-colonial history, to bring us up to date, um, Mm -hmm. is one where you had Sudanese fighting to this day for civilian, free democracy, uh, a revolution of the people, um, one that is uh, based on civilian democracy and the voice of the people. Uh, the tragedy that we see today and the devastation I'd like your viewers to understand is really a result of uh, forces fighting against the will of the people and three different popular revolutions that rose up in Sudan to overthrow authoritarian military leaders, one in 1964, another in 1985, and yet a third in 2018. Three times more than any African countries in the post-colonial period, Sudanese people rose up against the military occupiers that were in alliance with outside powers. I want uh, that to be very important because I I think uh, black listeners and uh, black folk all over the world need to understand that their support of the Sudanese people is supporting a legacy of revolution and solidarity uh, and of the people of Sudan who have tried very hard to generate and and gain that freedom. Uh, Those um, revolutions uh, of popular resistance uh, were overthrown and interrupted by military uh, coups. That, of course, is the the case in the majority of African countries, and uh, Sudan is no exception. Um, I could go through the details of the coups of 1969 and then 1989, but let me focus uh, on uh, the current uh, period for your viewers, uh, because I think your viewers want to understand why is it so confusing to understand what's going on in one of Africa's most historic countries um and one of the doctor before you part of that question
1: before you before you please
10: interrupt me because i can't see you so i'm not sure please interrupt me if you have
1: questions no problem before you before you go into the current situation i want to go back Mm -hmm. and talk about this uh the uh the colonized period when when uh, britain came Mm -hmm. in and around the early 1800s 1801 and something like that and colonized the area the separation of the sudan between the north and south did that come after they took the country back uh, uh, from uh, when the revolution happened in the mid-1800s and, and uh, Britain was able to come back in and take the, and retake the country? Did the separation happen then or it happened prior to? It,
10: it happened after they took it back. Thank you for it. Uh, it's very important to... Please interrupt me because that's such an important question. Um, that, that happened after they took it back. Uh, the reason that they wanted to Sudan, every African country presented a strategic outpost, as you know, for the colonial powers. In the case of Sudan, um, for Africans know this uh, very well, but it's important for African-Americans and others throughout the world to know, that the conflict really in Sudan strategically before the formal colonization uh, that happens um, in the beginning of the 20th century, that is when they entered Sudan in the early and mid-1800s, was a really conflict between France and Britain. Uh, And uh, the conflict uh, culminated in a very important historic battle in the southern part of uh, Sudan in a town called Fashoda. There are many books written about that. Uh, The fight really was about who was going to control East Africa. The French, of course, had controlled a a great deal of uh, West Africa by that time, uh, particularly the Senegal, which uh, becomes the most important colonial outpost for the French uh, in terms of its uh, financing uh, of their colonies throughout West Africa, uh, and of course Algeria, but that was of course a settled colony. But Sudan represented a strategic outpost that was um, a conflict between France and uh, Britain, um, Britain wanted to take Sudan because they would then have hegemony and control over what we now know as East Africa, that is English speaking Africa. And so, and the French wanted the same. It was really Sudan in southern part and this town of Fashoda where they fought off, uh, the, the British fought off the French were able to take over dominion territorially over the Sudanese territory, or what is called Sudan, and then after that, of course, begin to consolidate their colonial rule over British-speaking, or what became British-speaking uh, East Africa and the Horn of Africa. And this is why your, your, um, your question is so important. First, it was a rivalry between imperial, two imperial powers, and then, of course, as in all all, um, all of Africa, um, the British uh, had to manage a way a to control uh, permanently this territory of Sudan, and also to extract as much finance and revenue for their industrial push in uh, the mills, the industrial mills in the in Britain. Uh, in the case of Sudan, um, the cotton was the most important commodity, and the British used violence, force, and uh, of course extrajudicial jud- kill- killings, uh, a wide array of, um, of violence in order to generate revenue from cotton because they had uh, political problems with Egypt and couldn't get it from there. Every African country then, as you know, represented this revenue imperative, um, as the British like to say at the time. And that is how do you finance that territory and at the same time extract resources from that territory that could benefit uh, the industrial and financial power uh, that it really, of course, as you know, underpinned the industrial revolution in Britain and other um, uh, countries. And so Sudan's uh, cotton becomes really important and the British uh, through force and through uh, the forcible taxation of rural Sudanese create the largest irrigation uh, scheme called Jazeera in the continent of Africa simply to grow cotton. It is here that they begin also the political colonial domination. If you want to control the economy and extract this kind of revenue, you have to, of course, uh, build a military uh, outpost or rather achieve both military and political control. And here is where they establish and institutionalize this divide and rule policy. And they enacted specific laws, particularly in the 1920s, 1920 and 1922, to be specific, uh, called uh, the closed ordinance legislation. Um, and these ordinance legislations and these laws were very much like, you know, the segregation laws that black folks know full well from the history of both slavery and, and reconstruction in the United States and Jim Crow. And that is that they forbid uh, through law uh, the intermingling of populations in Sudan in the north and the south, interrupting the historical relationship between Nubia and South Sudan I think your uh, listeners need to know because there is a misrepresentation of Sudan as falsely Arab against Africans it's important to know that Nubia and by the way I am Nubian myself from Northern Sudan I'm from the town of Meadowi, um, is linked directly culturally and linguistically to the Nilotic tribes of South Sudan of the Dinka, the Nuer and the Shuluk they speak the same language family and this goes to show you that prior to the European intervention, the relationships all the way from the northern parts of the Nile to the southern part of the Nile were peaceful through trade and through intermarriage, and they even shared the same language. Africans, as you know, much more identified through their linguistic uh, and cultural heritage rather than through even their ethnic uh, origins. And this is a really important. It is this colonial period that sets the stage for elites in both north and south to basically buy for not only political control, but economic control. Yeah. The problem in post-colonial Sudan was the northern elites begin uh, through outside support to dominate the politics and economic um, and um, and discriminate against uh, southern Sudanese in terms of power sharing, but also neglect uh, the western provinces of that four that I'm sure your your um, viewers have have heard about. Yeah, the, the, uh, did that answer your question? Y-
1: yes, it did. But it, it leads to another one. Uh, but and, and I'm gonna pass okay. it over. Richard. Oh, I, I know you you chopping it a bit, Richard. I'm gonna pass it to you in a second. <laughs> okay, uh, Dr. Khalid, the. <laughs> Colonization yes. period, or period of colonization, it leads to, in my opinion, and if I'm wrong, I want you to clear me up as we talk. You know, before I open it up to callers, it leads to what's going on now. But let me go back to that mm-hmm. period of colonization because you talked about politically they had to establish control, and I'm talking about the British. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. the, the 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 process of colonization that took place in the Sudan. And I'm quite sure it was like this in other African countries, but it might have differed uh, in specific areas. Educationally, because the people in the Sudan speak English and they speak Arabic. Am I right? That's correct. Okay. Uh, The historical education about the people and what was going on, you already stated that that was interrupted intentionally. Yes. And the, poli- right. the political part is kind of what I wanted to focus in on before I pass it to Richard, because you talked about the political elites that were in control or in power. Now, Britain, I'm quite sure uh, that they tried to establish, and you clear me up if I'm wrong, people that mm-hmm. look like the people in the continent, they didn't want to necessarily, although they they were on a lot of occasions in control themselves. But their objective was to have people that look like the people that that's there in control of the government mm-hmm. and funnel the resources and everything else to them. They wanted a middleman, mm-hmm. so to speak. So these political mm-hmm. elites, who were they? Were they were they Sudanese people?
10: Yes. What a great question absolutely the the divide and rule policy in Sudan was very similar to every African country particularly the ones that are the, the ones who were uh, ruled indirectly rather okay. than settled like Kenya or Algeria Okay in the case of Sudan your question is so important absolutely intermediaries become a key way in order to stabilize and, and control the political system there is no African country very few that uh, uh, was not uh, utilized in that way. The British called them native authorities. I think that that uh, terminology encapsulates to you, to you exactly. Okay. Um, those in I'll give you the case of Sudan, but you can compare it to every single African country pretty much. Uh, in the case of Sudan, it was essentially two families. Uh, one of the families is called the uh, uh, Mahdi family, and believe it or not, I think this is extremely important. Um, it was uh, the son. Um, of uh, Muhammad Ahmed al mahdi that I spoke about, who actually fought the British. Uh, that uh, was one of the intermediaries that they used. Um, and the way they used them is both through stick and carrot. Initially, they took their lands, they undermined uh, their political and legitimate status. They were religious leaders, uh, particularly of the Sufi traditions that are most common in Africa and, of course, in Sudan, Muslim and, of course, black and Arab at the same time, and, of course, the descendants of uh, the great hero of the nation uh, that kicked out the British um, in the in the 19th century. So that family was called and continues to be very important politically in Sudan called the, the Mahdi family. The second family was called the Muhammad Osman Margani family, the Margani family, um, and th- that was uh, the kind of other intermediary the, that the British used. So what they did is they utilized, with these uh, what they called native leaders or native authorities in order to put down dissent and protest in sudan during the colonial period and they basically bought them off through giving them extra land in the country giving them finance and of course giving them political opportunity to be the leaders of the country these two families continue to dominate civilian politics um, in um, the in the Sudan until the nineteen eighties, because they managed to develop political parties. Uh, and they became also very much uh, compradors, as we say, or allies, uh, both to the British and to outside p- powers in the post-colonial uh, period. The British did something else also that they did in African countries, particularly in Muslim African countries. And in the case of Sudan, in addition to utilizing, exploiting and instrumentalizing these two families in order to, um, you know, have political consol- consolidation over the population. They also utilized their Christian missionaries, sent them to South Sudan, where it was uh, Christianity uh, that was utilized as a part of the educational system in English, but not Arab and, uh, Arabic and Islam. They forbid the education of Southern Sudanese in Arabic, and they forbid the promulgation and the expansion of Islam there. So what you had, of course, is in a political sense, uh, elites that were uh, dominating and utilized by the colonial period in the country. And at the same time, you had a very, very important institutionalization of the real difference between so-called Muslims uh, in the north and uh, Christians in the south, uh, Arabized ethnic groups speaking Arabic in the north, and uh, Southern Sudanese uh, speaking, or, or at least uh, the elite speaking English, although the majority of Southern Sudanese speak their own indigenous languages. And here is the kind of system of divide and rule that the British applied elsewhere. They did something else that uh, people even in Africa don't know, but I'd like my African students and brothers to understand, is that they made sure that the military was weak. And the way that they made the, sure that the uh, military was, was weak is that they prevented the establishment in the pre- and post-colonial period, but it begins for them in the pre-colonial period, of having a strong national standing army. Um, they executed uh, nationalist uh, and soldiers, Uh, who wanted to develop a national-based army, one that was legitimate to the Sunnis people. And the British were the first, actually, to establish militias. I'm sure you've heard of militias all over the African continent and everyone asking, where do they come from? They, they must be these crazy Africans who have become militias and destroying everything. Well, the origins of that actually was part of the, uh, the British and the colonial divide and rule policy. And uh, the reason they did it, and they called them rapid support forces, and that is the idea being that they could use the militias to put down dissent against the colonial system and make sure there was never a strong standing army to actually represent the majority of the Sudanese people because that would be a military threat against colonial domination. And this is why your question is important because it sets the root, uh, the roots of the political divisions, uh, the elites that Sudanese people have been fighting to overthrow for many years and it also explains this false dichotomy that uh, black people always ask me uh, who's Arab who's African in Sudan what's going on you know what, what are the roots of that Uh, The roots of that are colonial separation, uh, where those identifications become really representative of really a very small elite, but not the majority of the country. I, for example, I'm an Arab speaker and Muslim, but I'm from Nubia. I'm not related in any way to those two families I I spoke to you about. In that four you have uh, ethnic groups that are Arab speakers and others that are not. They, too, are not related to these dominant elite families that were utilized by the British to colonize. Um, the country, so I hope that that is clear and not too too complicated, but it 's very, very similar to how colonial policy was implemented um, and orchestrated and institutionalized throughout the African continent, and that is why Africans understand intuitively. What's going on in Sudan,
11: um, was, without
10: having to read a
1: lot of books? If you know what I mean. Yeah, I, listen, I understand, and, and listen—that's how that's how the neo-colonial system is implemented here in the United States. Uh, frequent mm-hmm. listeners to our program know exactly what I'm talking about. But Richard, that's right, Richard. I'm passing the mic to you, Richard. I know you're ready.
9: Yeah, and, and Dr. Clis, I, I just—you um, brought us. In, in dealing, I wanted to make, I want to get um, clarity on one point. So the British um, indirect rule operated within southern Sudan. And you had mentioned, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, that in northern Sudan, was it still controlled by the French after, or was that total Sudan controlled by the French? I mean, the British.
11: Oh,
10: uh, initially the French wanted to control parts of the Sudan, and they did very briefly, just for a couple of years. But it was that very famous uh, battle that occurred in in the 1890s in a a town that uh, um, is not known to many people. It's a town called Fashoda in the central southern part of Sudan. It was a very famous battle where the British finally, through their military, defeated and expelled the British from what we know today as Sudan. And uh, following that defeat, basically the French and the British agreed uh, through treaty and negotiations that they would make a peace, so to speak, and divide the spoiled. And that is that France would get to keep their uh, territories primarily in northern and western Africa, and British would then be uh, able to control and expand through what you know, what we know as Eastern Africa, um, many of those countries that, uh, of course, like Uganda and in Kenya um, those are the countries that they were also extremely interested in. But it was Sudan and that became a route, uh, uh, to the expansion and consolidation and monopolization of those, uh, of those, uh, other African countries in the East.
9: And, and so, the, um, and the, these two families that, um, became the native authority within Sudan, what period is this and, and how long did that extend? Is that those families, um, still? Um, primarily in control uh, as far as politically, um, or not. I guess I'll, I'll keep it short there. Are those still the governing families that um, today?
10: Those families govern in uh, in the in the short periods of civilian rule. They're not a civilian, They're not military families. But your question is very very important, my brother, because there's an element to their relationship to the military. Um, remember, Sudan experienced a short democratic period in the 1950s and then 1960s and 1980s. Uh, so basically, there were three elections in the country, and in each of those elections these two families through their political parties uh and and of course orchestrating the elections won the majority in parliament <laughs> now every time the Sudanese people and this is a very important point you ask every time the Sudanese people rose up against their corruption uh because they did not represent the the will and the interest of the majority of the Sudanese they colluded these two families colluded and allied with uh uh, officers in the military in order to overthrow um, the civilian democratic governments. So here you see uh, what your colleague was talking about, the neocolonial legacy, right? So even in, in those instances after independence in 1956, um, when the civilian families or these two families um, really uh, won elections, As soon as they were losing their popularity, they decided, well, it's better to ally with military forces, particularly mid-ranking officers, uh, and overthrow the democracy so their interests are not undermined by the will of the Sudanese people. They did this in the military coup of 1958. They did it in the military coup of 1969, and they did it again in the military coup of 1989. Uh, These are the same families that continue to try to dominate uh, civilian political life, and they actually go by the same name. So if you Google that name, you'll see their, their sons and their grandsons, uh, are the ones who are still trying to rule today. But what happened, my brother, in 2018 was a grand revolution that we call the the the, uh, the glorious revolution, uh, the largest revolution in Sudan and in African history. And that was, of course, re- led by young people and resistance committees, street protesters who who wanted to overthrow both the military establishment and elite, but also overthrow and and not permit. This, these same families to once again dominate dominate civilian political life.
9: And th- is that where the uh, Sudanese People Liberation Movement come in, or is that something different?
10: The Sudanese people, People's Liberation Movement grew out of uh, um, out of opposition to the legacy of the divide and rule, you know, that, that separation between North and South. Um, and that becomes really important, because in 1955, um, a group called the Anyanya movement, the first precursor of the Sudanese uh, liberation movement, People's Liberation Movement, SPLM, begin to agitate and to fight against Northern domination. Um, and that becomes a really important starting point of Sudan's civil war, that had a small uh, brief respite in the middle of the 1970s, but began again in 1983. That movement, uh, the Anyanya Movement for Liberation, um, called for the equal distribution of resources and also political representation. It grew into uh, a vast movement from the south um, and led to a long civil war that ended to an agreement in 1973. The war then begins again, in 19 in the early 1980s, uh, where the um, kind of um, um, the legacy of uh, the first uh, revolutions forms under what you just mentioned, and that is the SPLM, the Sudanese People's Liberation Movement, and their, uh, their army, the SPLA, under the Sudanese P- People's Liberation Army. Uh, that was le- led very famously by a very famous African leader and Sudanese leader called John Garang. John Gutten was a black man from the South, of course, and he had a vision, and I interviewed him, and I knew him very well, Um, and I was in Washington, D.C. when he would come to visit us. Um, John Gutten was a, a Ph.D. holder. Um, has a PhD in agricultural economics from uh, Iowa State, uh, and he had a vision just like the uh, Afri- Afrocentric leaders and pan-Africanist leaders throughout Africa did, including Du Bois and others, and of course, uh, Nkrumah. For John Gadang, uh, Sudan's future and peace could only be achieved through what he called a new vision, a new Sudan, where no group would be discriminated based on ethnicity, <clears throat> and um uh, the economic resources had to be distributed equally, and um, political representation had to be uh, equal. For all the different uh, regions, including the regions that were marginalized under the colonial period, not only South Sudan, but Darfur and the eastern part. It's only the central part that uh, had any wealth or economic development. Um, that leader became the most popular uh, leader in uh, in Sudanese history. Um, young people, not only in southern Sudan, where it's from, but the north are welcomed in, in the millions in, in 20, um before he passed away um, in 2010 uh, prior to the elections in the country there Uh, he was unfortunately killed uh, flying from uganda uh, having met with yori Museveni, the ugandan leader there for a meeting and he died and his plane crashed under mysterious circumstances just before um Mm. around uh, 2010 Um, and that was the leader of the sudan people's liberation movement who had promised unity of sudan but it was his um, um, a vice president at the time or, the, or the, the deputy of the Sudan People's Liberation, Sal Kiir, that after the death of Garang took over that organization and began fighting for a new vision for a complete separation of South Sudan from the north, and he was aided and abetted in that kind of vision by constituencies in the United States and the United States government.
9: And that, and that, and that brings me, before I pass it back to you, Elliot, um, where I wanted to go, because Earlier on, you were making reference that um, as a resource extraction, cotton, you know, during the colonial period, British was the commodity. Um, as, and, and, and centering in that time period of, you know, the the, the liberation movement, um, was there still a resource extraction to, say, Britain or United States or, or other um, countries? Or was, I'm trying to get to, um, global impact on the Sudanese um, um, political and, and economic relationships within the, within Sudan.
10: Absolutely. Thank you so much for that question, because I want your listeners to think of Sudan and every African country through uh, commodities and through extraction. In the case of Sudan, let me just speak about Sudan, but you can apply it to all of the African countries you're close to and you care about. And I hope you care about Sudan as well. And these commodities are are cotton, oil and gold. Let me say that again. (laughs) Cotton. (laughs) <laughs> cotton, oil, and gold. Sudan is one of the world's uh, most resource-rich countries, and so is the Sahel region, by the way, as you probably know. Cotton was in the period of the colonial period and all the way up to the 1970s, where it determined the, not only the political e- and economic fortunes of Sudan, but it also, of course, was a primary commodity that was used, utilized and underpriced and marketed under the, the fair price as you you can imagine, uh, to um, to Britain and other parts of the world, um, as um, competition over cotton and particularly the, the invention of polyester becomes uh, really important globally, um, there was uh, much more or less interest on the part of um, the metropole or the Europeans or the capitalists or even in the United States of uh, that commodity in particular. But what occurred in Sudan in the ni- late um, in the er- late 70s, early 1980s. Was the discovery of vast amounts of oil, and it was discovered by Chevron, um, the you know the oil the U.S. oil company. Chevron then begins to try to excavate that oil and build the pipeline, not uh, from, um, uh, let's say, um, South Sudan uh, to. Uh, the eastern part of Africa, but through North Sudan to the Red Sea, where it would be much more accessible. Um, Chevron left Sudan because that was the primary reason, and here is why your question is important. It was the dispute over this oil uh, that led John Garang to begin the second civil war. John Garang knew that this discovery of oil was going to benefit only the northern elites uh, that we spoke about, And, of course, uh, benefit only those uh, superpowers that were intent of of getting this kind of gold at the cheapest price possible. Knowing that, what John Garang did is he actually begins his civil war and his rebellion against Chevron uh, and against that pipeline, and that actually begins the second civil uh, civil war, which uh, is so important for Sudan and has determined its partition. Later on, as Chevron leaves, the Canadian company comes in, Talisman. That also is forced to leave for security reasons. And ultimately, as you may know, it's China and its conglomerates, uh, the state-run um, Chinese oil companies that take over the oil field um, in Sudan and then, of course, dominate them um, in uh, post um, partition uh, Sudan because the majority of oil is in uh, southern Sudan uh, region Um, that can help us so the first helps us understand the colonial period and the interest of the outsiders and particularly Britain Uh, oil helps us understand the interest of the United States oil companies and then the China which is uh, so determinant and influenced and Determined the partition of Sudan and Sudan civil war. And then gold now is Sudan's third unfortunate chapter. Here, gold, uh, Sudan is actually the largest exporter of gold in the African continent after Angola and Ghana. And um, that gold um, is exported in the billions, uh, approximately uh, more than two billions per year uh, through smuggling. Um, it is located in the north of Sudan, and a lot of it is in the western part. It does two things: gold is being smuggled to the united Arab Emirates to the markets, the gold markets. they are then refined and then sold across the globe um they are they are ninety nine percent or ninety percent of them go through uh, the united Arab Emirates um, and that then goes to other of foreign Western countries, and then uh, another part of it goes through Syria to, um, to Russia. Um, and that becomes really an important gold also is the primary commodity is that is financing the militia that is wreaking, wreaking havoc uh, on the Sudanese people. So I want your listeners to, when they see these horrible pictures of the Sudanese people, I want them to remember your question and think, no, this is not the fault of the Sudanese people. This is not a result of African savages. This is a result of greed, of external powers that have determined the largest uh, political uh, movements and developments in Sudan. And the only thing the Sudanese people are guilty of is living in a region with vast, vast commodity wealth. First, cotton. Then oil and now gold, and Mm -hmm. that is the burden that what the Sudanese people are, um, you know, laboring under. It's not because they hate each other as ethnicities. It's not because one speaks Arabic and the others do not. It's because it's a a weak political system was dominated by military elites um, and uh, the greed of these external powers that are, um, if I can say. uh, have an unquestionable unquest- uh, thirst uh, for uh, for money and for finance. And these, of course, as you know, my friend, are some of the most important commodities in global markets.
1: Mm. Yes, yes, yes. We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation. I want to, after break, uh, uh, Dr. Khalid, I want to kind of move up until the area of uh, the early 2000s, because you kind of brought it up to around ni- 1989, I want to talk about Darfur and uh, American foreign policy that intervened there and basically caused a huge issue and huge problem. Uh, and then we'll we'll talk about the student protest movement, which is the grassroots revolution that's going on basically currently. Um, that's right. We'll, yeah. ta- we'll talk about all of those things, and I want to do it after the break. But uh, any questions okay. or comments, you can get involved, too, by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215 490 9832. We're in conversation tonight with the Chair of African Studies Program, the Associate Professor of Political Science, and the Islamic Studies Institute at McGill University in Canada, Dr. Khalid Mustafa Madani. Again, you can join the conversation at 215 490 9832. We'll be right back.
12: RG Electrical Inspections provides
6: electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837.
3: Escape the digital plantation. to me. AbibitumiTV.com, store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety. com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations. To control your own products, abibitumi.store is here for you. A B I B I T U M I. Black Power. A B I B I T U M I. The only word you need to know to join your global Kometu Black family, to join your interconnected Kometu Black communities. Escape the digital plantation now. abibitumi.com abibitumi.tv 2 metv We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation.
13: We are the watchmen on the wall. You are too. You watch with a political eye. We watch from a spiritual eye. But we're supposed to be the watchmen for the people that vote for us. The sad thing is, the people vote, but they don't give you the money to run your campaigns. So here come big business.
0: How are you? How are you, Judge?
13: How are you, (laughs) Alderman? How are you, Congressman? How are you? How are you, Reverend? (laughs) What can I do for you today, Reverend? You can't do nothing for me. See, that's what we got to be careful of. We got to be careful of who we bow down to. But well, see, when you get in your congregation and you talk this Jesus, this powerful Jesus, that's sitting at the right hand of the Father with all power in his hand, then you go with your hat in your hand to the governor, to the mayor, to the president, begging for some crumbs. You have sold your God cheap, And you make the white man downtown. Disrespect all of
14: us! In short, the lords of capital are creatures of U.S. imperial dominance. They go out of business when the empire does. The rulers are looking class death in the face, and it terrifies them. And when the lords of capital become frightened, they order their servants in politics and the war industries and the vast national security networks to take care of the problem by any means necessary. That means militarily encircling Russia and China, arming and mobilizing tens of thousands of jihadist terrorists in Syria in an attempt to repeat the regime change in Libya. Waging a war of economic sanctions and low-level armed aggression against Iran. Occupying most of the African continent through subversion of African militaries. Escalating subversion in Latin America. And spying on everyone on Earth with a digital connection. All this to stop the clock that is ticking on U.S. and European world economic dominance.
2: The organization of afro-american unity shall include all people of african descent in the western hemisphere in essence what is it thing instead of you and me running around here seeking allies in our struggle for freedom in the irish neighborhood or the jewish neighborhood or the italian neighborhood we need to we need to seek some allies among people who look something like we do and once we get their allies It's time out for you and me to stop running away from the wolf, right into the arms of the fox, looking for some kind of help. Number two, self-defense. We assert the Afro-American's right to self-defense. The Constitution of the United States of America clearly affirms the right of every American citizen to bear arms. And, as Americans... We will not give up a single right guaranteed under the Constitution. The history, the history of unpunished violence against our people clearly indicates that we must be prepared to defend ourselves or we will continue to be a defenseless people at the mercy of a ruthless and violent racist mob.
12: Time for an Awakening is a proud part of the Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black digital and podcasting platform.
8: Welcome
1: back to Time for an Awakening. It's 8.07 on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guest this evening in conversation, the chair of the African Studies Program and associate professor of political science and the Islamic Institute at McGill University in Quebec, uh, Montreal, Canada, Dr. Khalid Mustafa Madani is with us. The author of the book, Black Markets and Militants, is joining us this evening to talk about the uh, the situation in the humanitarian crisis in the Sudan, giving us a historic overview, bringing it up to the current, to what's going on, so we can understand clearly what is happening on the continent. Uh, Dr. Madani, you still with us? Yes, yes I am. Good, good, good. Um uh, <laughs> Dr. Madani, let let let's come up to um 2003 around the time of the Darfur tragedy, considered the Darfur genocide. And I saw you on another uh program talk about uh American foreign policy and how it led to the situation in Darfur. And we can see that Leading up to this point, that a lot of the problems that was going on there uh, stemmed from colonial rule, British and, and other uh, European players involved. But talk about that situation in Darfur and how you see that American foreign policy leads to what happened there.
10: Yes, of course. Thank you for that question. Let me uh, speak about that for itself, and then American foreign policy and uh, and its involvement. Yes. Um, because I I want to speak about the conflict itself to your listeners who um, um, may not be aware of uh, the background. I'm not going to um, you know uh, say too much about the background except uh, some important points. Um, uh, DATFOR, of course, is part of the Sahel region of Africa, and uh, it's very co- much connected to Sudan and to the entire region. I have a very good friend from Mali who always tells me to make sure in your interviews to say that Africa goes not only from north to south, but from west to east. And the reason I say that is the the real beginning of the DATFOR uh, conflict begins in the late 1980s. And as many Africans from the Sahel and others will know, uh, there was uh, a great deal of uh, climate change and desertification that occurred um, as a result of climate change. And that expanded uh, the desert uh, of the Sahara Desert in ways that really uh, were very, very difficult for a region in the Sahel and in Darfur uh, that basi- basically consists of both uh, nomads and peasants. Uh, historically, uh, nomads and peasants in Darfur and elsewhere in the Sahel have existed very peacefully. But this, uh, this kind of conflict, environmental conflict, uh, really as a result of drought, really uh, was kind of uh, one of the, the important background uh, that people need to remember to understand why outside powers can come and so quickly uh, have people fighting each other at such level of violence. Um, but the divisions themselves, uh, rather than being, uh, you know, something that are natural or African, were actually, uh, you know, began once again with the British colonial period. Um, the British colonial period tribalized, if I can use the word, the people in that form. They're the ones who divided the population into what they called uh, natives. In this case, it would be Arabized Bedouins. And by Arabized, I mean simply they're their Bedouins who happen to speak the, the dialect of Arabic. Um, and settlers, uh, what they called settlers, uh, who were uh, tribes, of so speaking a uh, different uh, language, the foreign Zagawa, also spoken in Chad. This kind of designation of uh, you know African ethnic groups into tribes is something that they did in every African country, including, of course, uh, as, as you may know, South Sudan, dividing people who had historically gotten along and not uh, divided themselves except through economic livelihood through um, um, tribalism and tribe. I want to give that kind of background so people understand that, that even in that 4 there's a, a colonial background to it itself. Uh, this is uh, one of the reasons that uh, the Darfur 4 crisis begins as a low-level conflict um, by the late 19. 19- 90s uh, because of the drought uh, rather than through military warfare but another thing about uh, that war and the reason it became militarized was the result of the cold war and people uh, often don't link uh, Libya and that war, uh, but I want people to understand that that war is just as close to Lib- uh, Libya as it is to the other parts of Sudan if not closer and during the cold war as you may know um, there was a 20-year civil war in Chad um, between the different ethnic groups as well. And uh, it created a confrontation between Libya's Mohammad al-Ghazafi, who was supported at the time by the Soviets, Uh, And that pitted him against the Reagan administration, uh, who was allied with France and Israel at the time. This led to the militarization of uh, anti-Kazafi groups in Libya by the Reagan administration as a result of Cold War competition. And that begins, my brother, the militarization uh, of that particularly in the north, where basically the war started in northern Darfur. This is an important background for people to understand that the British played a role in the beginning of this conflict, that drought also played a role in making... Group, uh, these groups compete over uh, scarce resources, but the Cold War and uh, the animosity and, of course, enmity of the United States and the Reagan administration in particular against Muammar Ghazafi also led them to uh, utilize and fund proxy militias and mercenaries there that also ended up uh, escaping and using uh, northern Darfur as a strategic area. And so already you had the rumbling of a great deal of conflict and militarization. That was compounded by U.S. policy with respect to Sudan and South Sudan. Um, And in the late 1990s, what happened is that there were discussions uh, by the civilian opposition against the military regime of uh, Omar Mohammed Bashir um, to uh, bring Sudan together and end the long civil war between the North and South. It was um, uh, something that was negotiated by the main opposition group Uh, uh, called the National uh, Democratic Alliance. It included, by the way, John Garang from the south and every uh, civilian political party um, in northern Sudan. The Asmara Declaration um, that it was called was signed in Asmara in Eritrea in the late 1990s. And it set um, the stage, as I've explained in other interviews, uh, most importantly, simply put, to make unity attractive to southern Sudanese that had suffered a civil war um, and deaths and uh, killings for almost um, over 30 or three decades, 30 years. Um, this was an important document because it insisted on um, the equality in power sharing, political representation for southern Sudanese and all the marginalized groups. It utilized uh, the vision, the new uh, the new Sudan vision of John Garang, that great leader I spoke about, and put it down in paper. That then was hijacked. Um, instead of uh, utilizing all of the different elements that were important and implementing them, what happened is um, the Troika, the United States, three partners, the United States, the UK, and Norway, intervened uh, and basically transformed that document as one that would be the the main uh, kind of tool uh, to iron out negotiations between the Northerners and the Southerners under what came to be called in 2005 the Comprehensive Peace Agreement. The Comprehensive Peace Agreement uh, really then was born out of a genuine willingness uh, and will, rather, of the Sudanese people to do everything possible to address the inequalities of the past, political and economic and to make uh, the unity attractive to southerners who had uh, been marginalized and brutalized for so many uh, decades. Uh, but um, the interests of the United States, Norway, and and uh, and the UK were different. Uh, they wanted um, a quick resolution uh, to um, the conflict, and they wanted uh, South Sudan essentially to partition. After all, it was a country then that could be uh, more easily exploited for its oil, but oil, but also strategically. Um, and what happened is that they um, colluded with the two leaders, Omar Bashir of North Sudan and South. Occurred after the death of John Garang, both of whom um, I liked your word, word intermediaries. Both of whom had their own interest. They didn't want to open up the political system and distribute uh, the uh, you know wealth uh, you know equally to their population. They wanted to consolidate their political rule and, uh, and authoritarian rule. And so uh, you hear you had a meeting of interests, my brother. You had the interest of the the military dictator Omar Bashir in North Sudan. And the military dictator South uh, South Akil, who is presently uh, the president of South Sudan, um, and what they did is that they um, had the shared interest with uh, with these uh, Western powers in order to expedite and quickly um, sign a comprehensive peace agreement that had the same protocols that the Sudanese people had wanted, uh, that included power sharing and wealth sharing, but those were not implemented. Even uh, the protocol of security sector reform, and that is meaning uh, demobilizing the militias so the Sudanese people in the north and south could have peace, peace. even that was not implemented. What was uh priority for uh, the Western powers and the U.S. was to get this agreement um, done as quickly as possible, and they sent um, um, Senator Danforth to South Sudan in order to expedite that. Um, and How is that linked to that war? Uh, Prior to the signing of the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, uh, the Sudan Liberation Army in North Sudan that began the insurgency in 2003 actually had agitated and opposed the signing of this agreement Saying simply that we also are marginalised and there is a no war here uh, going on in Darfur already, we want to be included in the dispensation, and uh, so that we too would have equal representation, um, both. Um, for political, reasons, political uh, representation and uh, more equitable wealth sharing. The United States refused. Danforth uh, told many, uh, including uh, a forum where I was in attendance, that the United States' official position was that the, the conflict in South Sudan and the conflict in that war were two different things. They had nothing to do uh, with each other. Of course, uh, completely obscuring the long history of inequality, uh, colonialism, and the post-colonial era, but also the will of both the southern Sudanese, northern Sudanese, and the people of Datfor. Uh, That uh, was a really important turning point, because following the signing of the, the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, the Datforian rebels decided that they didn't have an option they had to rebel against the central government or they were not going to get any piece of the pie and they were going to continue to be um, brutalized and oppressed by the elites and the military in the central government. Here, in, in in 2003, but even more after the signing of the Comprehensive Peace Agreement in 2006, the central government, the military government of Amr Bashir, decided to do something that has, Unfortunately, the, uh, is rooted in the awful conflict today, and that is they created a militia called the Janjaweed in order to practice earth scorch policies to put down the insurgency, um, as brutally as possible and to use one group of Dafforians against another, uh, Bedouins against, uh, uh farmers. And that becomes really important. Uh, the role of uh, the United States is important here, too, because the lobby, uh, the lobbyist in the United States, it was, uh, um, and I want to be clear absolutely you probably heard of the safe dad four coalition at the time with you know celebrities uh, weighing in and uh, it was a, a coalition of uh, uh, some uh, elite jewish groups, special interest even some black americans who uh, also were involved um, and others and that was the framing of that for as uh, a conflict between arabs and africans and there was no way um, to you know uh, deal with it except through um, you know um, you know so called humanitarian intervention that ended up being military intervention, and so here the role of the United States uh, has a lot to do with both the fact that peace uh, was not obtained between North and South, um, that they expedited the secession of South Sudan without implementing the protocols that the Sudanese people wanted and had put down on paper, and then they refused to address the cause of the conflict in that war. Even as the Darfurians and Sudanese, including myself at the time in Washington DC, were insistent that if the Darfur issue was not taken seriously in the context of the comprehensive peace agreement, that the Sudan would see a war of. Uh, the most brutal kind, and that 's exactly of course what happened. Eventually, you had uh, over you know two hundred thousand um, people um, massacred and killed, and um, over one million displaced. so a conflict in that war that from the outside looks like it 's uh, a result of locally rooted enmities and conflicts and between uh, different tribes uh, vying for power really has its roots um, in this long intervention or uh, wrong interventions and the lack of implementation of the will of the Sudanese people that was established and put down on paper under something called the Asma, Asmara Declaration in the late 1990s that was hijacked by the interest of two military dictators um, and the uh, United States, Norway and the United Kingdom. And that is an extremely important uh, background to understand the relationship between the war in and the partition of South Sudan and the war that has uh, that was sparked in Darfur, and that war in Darfur, of course, is what leads us now to the war in Sudan, because the leader, the second leader of the of the militias that that attempted to put down the insurgency in Darfur, um, is Muhammad um, uh, Hamdan Dagalo. Um, and he is the main militia leader of what was then the Janjaweed and then was called in um, 2013 the Rapid Support Forces. Uh, this is the same leader who is practicing now not only uh, scorched earth policies uh, that he did in Darfur in the uh, 2000s that we're speaking about, but now has expanded it throughout the country, leading to um, millions now, uh, seven million displaced within Sudan, and of course hundreds of thousands have been killed. An array of violence against Sudanese people that has its roots um, in not only the kind of political interest of these elites we're talking about, but also, as I hope I've made clear, these interventions uh, on the part of the United States Norway, the U.K., but particularly, of course, the United States at that time, that very few people uh, give uh, me or others the opportunity to outline in the way I just did, except in shows like yours. And I want to thank you for that.
1: Dr. Litt, let let's talk about now, because you talked about how this has basically bubbled up again or broken out again, but in the midst of all of this, you have a great, well, let me say this, and it's known to the time for awakening listeners that the continent of Africa has the largest and the uh, the largest number of young people on the face of this planet. The average age, according to some statistics, say that the median age or the average age of uh, the uh, of the Africans on the continent is 19 years old. In the Sudan, it's 18 years old. So, in the midst of all of what you've described. You have a grassroots revolution going on and the student protest movement organizing. Talk about the student protest movement and how this is going on in the midst of of uh, this chaos that that is that is being unleashed on the people uh, through colonial powers and colonial operatives. You have a grassroots movement of young people organizing to to. Uh, basically overthrow a lot of this foolishness talk about that grassroots movement because it i think it's important and and i'm gonna pass it off over to richard after you answer that question but i think that movement is important for us as africans in the diaspora to really look at go ahead go ahead uh, dr clit
10: yeah, thank you for so much. You know, I was thinking before you invited me on the show that that was the one, the thing I wanted to emphasize, both as, both as an African and as an African-American. And what I mean by that is that the statistics you just said about the, the, the youth in Africa uh, really is the main story of Africa right now. And I, I want to talk uh, uh, quickly about the youth movement in Sudan, but I just want to mention to your viewers that youth movements and protests encompass the entire continent. I was just at a conference with, with folk from the, from the DRC, from Mali, from Burkina Faso, from Algeria, from, from Egypt, from, uh, from Morocco. Um, you, know, the, you know, youth is the future of Africa. Uh, there is no question. You just, you just explain to us why. Um, and there is a reason why uh, youth movements uh, and protests are, Continuing without, uh, um, you know, kind of uh, ending throughout the population. I'll give you the example of Sudan because it's very similar to others, but Sudan was the, is the largest, um, and that is in 20, uh, 2010. The Sudanese uh, youth uh, movements emerge, and I was there with them. I began to do research and to visit them. I knew that they were, as I was saying, you know, the the future of Sudan, and I I believe the future of Africa. They're the primary source of of black solidarity. They're really at the very Heart of what uh, we call Pan Africanism uh, and transnational Black solidarity, and so if uh, if your viewers don't take uh, um, don't listen to any other part of the interview, I, I hope they listen to this uh, this part. In 2010, two, two youth movements emerged, as they have in other African countries. In the in the case of Sudan, one of them was called Girisna, which uh, um, you know basically means uh, in Arabic uh, you know we're, we're, we're fed up. And that's why when you said it's nonsense, that's how the youth movement feel. And the second one was uh, simply called Sudan Change Now. They decided in 2010 that the Comprehensive Peace Agreement was undermining Sudan. They decided that that for conflict was going to expand, and they no longer trusted their civilian elite political leaders. They began to figure out what is wrong with the country. And they realized, and I would speak to them uh, a lot, is that there were two things. One of them, that they had to raise the national consciousness of Sudanese. Uh, that was extremely important. They felt that uh, the colonial period did not and uh, interrupted uh, a real sense of solidarity and national consciousness. Uh, consciousness, the other thing is that they wanted to deal with issues that were uh, being um, utilized by elites and outsiders and i 'm talking about racism uh, for the first time, youth organizations began to understand that racism in the Sudan that was, has been perpetu- uh, has been used and, uh, and constructed by elites had to be addressed. They began to form uh, resistance committees resistance committees. In every part of Sudan, not only in Khartoum in the capital, but in Jazeera, in the central part, in the northern part of the ancient areas of Nubia, in Darfur, that was sparked by a racist um, killing of. Uh, black Darfurians in the central part of the Sudan at the university there where the government, and I don't like to often say this, but it's important for our black people to understand and, uh, and know why these uh, movements became so strong. And that is that uh, they blamed and they made up that there were protests there at the university in the Jazeera that were led, uh, the government said, by black Darfurians. They killed them and threw them in a shallow grave. This uh, was, uh, and I was there when the youth movement began to mobilize around that. The, the resistance com- committees decided if they did not address this issue of deep racism that was perpetuated by the government in order to put down dissent and insurgencies, that, uh, you know, there would no, not be a future for the Sunnis people. And that's why they became so strong. And of course, in addition to that, they came up with new ways of organizing through social media and also to how to evade the security forces. Um, so that was really the genesis of uh, the grassroots movement that over the years, and that's why. You know, the whole world was surprised, but as you can imagine, I was following them all of these years, and I knew their work in organizing, their their work in consciousness raising. They refused to uh, be co-opted by not only outside uh, powers, but also by the local elites that wanted to co-opt them into their political parties. And by 2018, they basically waged a revolution where millions, millions in every part of the country did something that was near impossible, and that is they brought, brought down one of the strongest authoritarian military dictatorships in the African continent. By 2019, uh, the protest uh, uh, led by the resistance movements and professionals and, and unions, labor unions and professional unions, uh, organized strikes, work stoppages, street protests over a six-month period until they got what they wanted. And that was uh, that kind of hope for democracy and for unity uh, that for all Sudanese, this, you know, no matter what ethnicity, what race. And I think you'll understand, and I think people, black folk, understand very well. This kind of strong revolution is always going to get the worst kind of counter revolution. You know, I just I just saw you, but I just heard in the in the break Malcolm X speaking. You know, when when you have a successful revolution of this kind, there are a lot of forces inside and outside that that are not going to stop until they try to undermine this this revolution, and that's what occurred beginning in 2019, as um, the military leaders decided to um, you know uh, promise a transition to civilian democracy and at the same time uh were supported by uh, the british government uh, on the side of the military and then the united arab emirates and the united states of course on the side of uh, of the militia and uh, what they did is they basically instead of completing the revolution and meeting the demand demands of the youth uh, they decided to establish um, a partnership between the military uh, leaders and civilian elite leaders, and promise elections and a civilian government and freedom over the course of the next two years. But what they had really planned, of course, was to undermine the completion of the revolution, the success of the revolution. Uh, the, as you probably know or may have heard, uh, the strength of this particular revolution went on. Um, even though um, the young people were massacred in the summer of 2019, their bodies uh, thrown in the Nile because of their protesting and waging sit-ins, and I hope your listeners understand the bravery of uh, of black people in Sudan, and young people, I mean, in particular, um, they continued, even after that massacre, they continued to protest every day because they wanted the fall of this uh, government and they wanted their uh, full civilian democracy. And during that time, uh, that massacre, uh, you had the partnership of the leader of the military, Abdel Fadi Burhan, who is now claiming that he is the legitimate leader of the country, and his close, close ally, Muhammad um, Hamdan Dagalo, um, the second protagonist in this huge war in Sudan. Both of them allies, partners, both of them um, you know benefiting from the gold smuggling, both of them p- uh, putting uh, cooperating to put down dissent and insurgency in Darfur and kill young people on the street almost every day in order to stop them from protesting. These are the two men who are now fighting each other, and of course we 'll speak about wh- why that is, but I want your listeners to understand that if they 're confused about why the Sudanese population refuses. To acknowledge the legitimacy of these two generals, this is the background, because in most African wars, usually there's a side of right, usually there's a side, there's a general that may have a legitimate popularity among among the population because he's fighting for the right cause even if it may be violent and we disagree with that. In this case, both generals cooperated to conduct massacres in Darfur uh, in the 2000s and all the way in uh, up to uh, the present. Um, and then they, of course, differed over who was going to completely control the economy and the politics of the country. But in that period, uh, it's important to understand that the Sudanese armed forces led by Islamists uh, in the top rank of the military uh, did not want their, uh, their, their fortunes that they have built over 30 years and their political power disbanded by young people who had the audacity to say we want you out of power. We want to dismantle the state that has dominated the economy. We want to stop your corruption. We're not going to allow your political party to get back into power. Uh, that's what young people were fighting for and continue to be fighting for. In 2016, the former Islamist regime of Bashir actually legitimized the militia uh, that they're fighting now. They brought them into the military uh, and basically used them as their kind of uh, coercive arm to put down dissent uh, and kill these uh, these protesters uh, throughout the, the 20 to the 20,000 so uh, the 2000s, and that's a really important aspect to to uh, keep in mind. Just before this war, um, uh, Borhan, the head of the military, was saying that Hemeti, uh, who he's fighting to the death now, was his greatest ally and that the militia that he was yielding and had organized and was on the street um, was part and parcel of the legitimate national forces. Now, both of them are saying the opposite. The head of the military is saying that um, Hileti and this militia is a terrorist organization. It should be branded a terrorist organization. And ironically, the head of the militia responsible for the assault and massacres of people in Darfur is saying that he is the spokesperson for liberty in Sudan and the spokesperson for democracy. So, without understanding this background, you just asked me about. Um, you know, people uh, look uh, watching or listening or reading about Sudan won't understand. You know what this um, you know um, war is about, and what this war really is about is to do everything uh, by uh, use violent means in order to stop the revolution of the young people who represent the majority of the Sudanese population from actually realizing freedom, liberty, and also democracy.
1: We're in conversation with the chair of the African Studies Program, the Associate Professor of Political Science and the Islamic Studies Institute at McGill University in Canada, Dr. Khalid Mustafa Madani. Uh, If you question or comment, you can join the conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Uh, Richard, you just heard yeah. Dr. Khalid say that these gatherings of young people are going on all over the country. You heard that. In fact, oh, we, yeah. we've heard that from other guests that we've had on from the continent. But he said the largest is going on in Sudan. Uh, Dr. Madani, before I, uh, Richard, I want you to take it over, but let me re- read this article here to, uh, to Dr. Madani here that was, that uh, echoes what you stated. It's from the, it's Al Jazeera, editorial in March of 2020 and the header says Malcolm X and the Sudanese he says over the past year the Sudanese revolution has sparked a renewed interest in Pan-Africanism among Sudanese youth as Nubian culture is celebrated and the ideas of revolutionary African leaders like Amir Kokabral and Thomas Sankar are re-examined but it seems few people are aware of how much Malcolm X was drawn to the Nubian civilization and deeply impacted by Sudan. Much has been made of his trips to Africa, his interaction with people like uh, 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 Kwame Nkrumah in Egypt's president, Gamal Abdel Nasser, and the cultural consequences of his visits. But the impact of Sudan on Malcolm's thinking and the Sudan's consequence influence on African-American culture remains unexplored. This is what you just stated, Dr. Khalid, about the influence of pan-Africanism on the youth in the Sudan and youth all over the continent. I just wanted to read that article that was in Al Jazeera on March 2020 in reference to what you just stated.
9: Richard? You know, Dr. Khalid, there's two things that you mentioned, or one you mentioned that I I don't know if um, we have the time to explore Um, but it's interesting how it's having an effect here. And that's the, the impact of, of the Sudanese, um, youth talking about they have to deal with racism. And the reason why I bring that up, because here, um, there's this discussion and you, you hear it at various levels that race is no longer exists. And, and, and it is new to me to hear that in the Sudan, the ideal of race having an impact and an organizing being an organizing principle, but I, I like the whole that. What I, um, something I think I heard you in an interview speak to is the organizing process of the youth themselves, in the sense of going cla- going, uh, going across c- class and ideological strata. If I have that right, and if I do, could you explain that? Um, because I think that that's important to understand of what is it that they understand they have to do in order to bring the various, you know, different groupings together, um, as youth. Oh, uh, if that makes sense. Of
10: course. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um- you know one of the things about successful activism and grassroots uh, movements and uh, um, and the case of sudan uh, and w- when I say it 's the largest and uh, and the most uh, impactful is because um, of the kind of um, the work, what we call uh, consciousness raising, not only organization. Um, the consciousness raising a- aspect uh, is really based on the, a very simple principle that I know you're familiar with, and of course black folks as activists have been familiar with it for for centuries, more than not just decades. And that is to understand the predicament, to diagnose you know, just like Malcolm X did, you diagnose what the real problem is before you come up with a solution. And all of the great black American leaders, of course, uh, to the extent that they were successful and continue to have their legacy, it's based on that. Does the diagnosis resonate is it based on the real history? Um, um, does it uh, represent the grievances of the people you're trying to serve? And then you come up with the, the resolution, the solution. That's where the ideas are so formidable. And the legacy, if you don't mind me saying, of black Americans to the world, and including Sudan, is really that art of diagnosis, understanding that that's where you want, you need to go first. In the case of the, of the youth movement and the grassroots movement in Sudan, they realized that they could not replicate uh, what were the main fissures, the main problems of Sudanese history dating back to the colonial period. One of them, of course, was the deep class division. Another one was the ideological divisions of the political parties, whether left, Islamist, and others. Um, and so uh, what they contemplated and put into practice was that, number one, they would not, uh, for the time being, actually adopt an ideology. Mm. Uh, they fail, felt that that would be too divisive at this stage of the revolution. That's number one. Number two, uh, they decided on something called ease of entry. It doesn't matter what class you you come from. This is an open membership uh, organization. You come, you can be rich, poor, working class. For the time being, everyone is included. You know, there is no membership card. You know, you don't have to pay dues. That's another thing, ease of entry. Another one is keep it horizontal. Don't have a vertical organizational structure because leaders are, in the Sudanese history, as we just explained, get co-opted either by local politicians or by external actors. That becomes really the raison d'etre of the vision of the of the grassroots movement and if you take one um uh, famous activist black american after another you'll see that became uh, the same kind of process is what each uh, black leader of course envisioned and implemented uh, with of course Cases being different, right? And that is that every country, every society has its own particular history that has to be addressed. From there, then you begin to think about uh, the implementation, to think about the action. And in this case, the action for the resistance committees was to make sure that um, there was a synchronicity in the different parts of the country in terms of the resistance committees themselves, actions that happen in the same way. Number two is to do everything you can to avoid uh, the, co- uh, the coercive apparatus, the police, the military that were uh, coming after you. You had to devise a certain a way of doing that. I prefer not to detail that here in, in you know mm-hmm. on in, in radio, in yeah. Um, And uh, uh, another thing is to uh, be very, very clear about um, your linkages with other groups. You know, if they are important, then you do that in order to expand the movement and to make uh, it more effective. In the case of the resistance committees, they allied themselves. With frankly a middle class organization, right? It's like the, uh, you know, the Black Panthers allying with the Civil Rights Movement, for example, and 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 that actually occurred in particular historical moments. In the case of the. The resistance committee they allied because of the particular historical moment with something called the Sudanese professional association the Sudanese professional association um, are a group of lawyers doctors physicians middle and upper class Sudanese that happen to be uh, have progressive politics uh, they historically had been fighting for it to increase the minimum wage uh, but then they allied themselves with the resistance committee that allowed the resistance committees to be able to have a coordinating body that would be able to facilitate uh, their organization, their expansion, but more importantly, frankly, to facilitate the street protest in coordination across the country. That kind of thinking, that kind of ingenuity is of course part and parcel of the tradition of Pan-Africanism and black solidarity. And this is why I know that uh, that as an African-American too, and I know your listeners will understand that this is the same process that black folk have utilized throughout the globe and they continue to to to, to utilize it. The only difference here is the caveat is uh, to be effective, it has to resonate to the local context of black people themselves. Mm -hmm. Sudanese are not African-Americans. African-Americans are not Sudanese in that particular sense. But certainly the processes, the vision, the consciousness, and the call to action is similar across the board globally among black uh, black people. And I I think you know what I'm talking about when I say that. Mm
9: -hmm. Thank you for that.
1: Uh Dr. Madani, the uh what, what, what let me do this. Let me go to uh caller. Carla, uh, yes, yes, sir.
15: good brother. Greetings, greetings uh, brother Elliot, greetings uh Richard and greetings to the good professor. Um, um you know, Doctor, you know, I have a family member from Sudan, you know, actually. Uh, my wife is from Sudan, uh, a, a village called El Gatena. that village yeah. Yes, <laughs> you know, that village yeah. has been overrun by the RSF, you know. And, I know. You know the, the the Sudanese army just bombed the village the other day, you know, killing some civilians, you know. So, I mean, as you said, it's so much confusion going on. But, you know... Um, in reference to what you're saying, there, you know the, we have a historian, uh, Dr. John Henry Clark. He said, you know, the African has no friends outside of the race, and very few friends within. And you yeah. know, with that, a pivot to the Arabs, you know, because I was wondering if there was something that was called the trans Sahara slave trade, which we, we don't really talk about a lot. What is the legacy of that in Sudan? Because you spoke about racism. And I said, some of these black people, they are blacker than me. They're blacker than my shoes. And I said, yeah. these these are black people killing other black people. So what kind of mindset if you could speak about the mindset of these people who are killing, you know, Africans killing Africans, I say we killing them. They are blue black people killing other black people. If we could just speak briefly on what type of mindset we're dealing with here, and I'll hang up and listen to your response. doctor. Thank you so much.
1: Well, uh, you Good, know what? I'll, you. I'll leave you. I'll leave you, you, you there just in case you have a follow up question. I'll just leave you right there. All right. Okay. Go ahead, doctor. Okay. Sure.
10: Um, Thank you for that question, and uh, I know that you and your wife, al I know it very well. Of course, uh, um, the violence, I think that your question, if you don't mind me saying at the beginning, it's important also that we don't forget uh, if we have time to talk about what's going on on the ground right now with the huge, um, you know, uh, devastation uh, of the of the people. All of us are affected. Of course, um, uh, from uh, north and from the central part, but of course, all of us have friends. And uh, um, the, the 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 town that uh, that our colleague and brother was talking about is one that was uh, more recently taken over by both the militias and then bombed by the army. And it's a place actually where um, millions of other Sudanese had fled to to for safety, and and now they don't even have safety there so it's uh, very important to understand the uh, the dynamics of uh, of the conflict on the ground and and uh, what we can Uh, As black people outside, and and of course Sudanese, try to think and do about it, Um, the trans-Saharan slave trade is um, um, a devastating has a devastating legacy uh, in Sudan. It's different from the trans-Atlantic slave trade. Um, It's difficult to encapsulate the differences. There are similarities, but I think most people are interested in the differences. The legacy of the trans-Atlantic slave trade is different in the sense that the industrialist Tony Morrison, the writer, would put it, the industrial Industrial aspect of the transatlantic slave trade, as as you know, as Black Americans, um, really uh, codified race in a particular way—the one-drop rule that all of you are familiar uh, with. And that, of course, led to uh, um, you know of, the horrible legacy of what we know, of course. Uh, but we all—it also led to a particular kind of Black solidarity and consciousness. In other words, black Americans, uh, including myself, were compelled to understand what it means to be black and black consciousness. Um, and that is how those things are constructed. In the trans-Saharan slave trade, Islam has a very different tradition and most, of course, um, were um, um, Arab Muslims. In the sense that progeny is recognized and so what you have is uh, the complication of uh, of color um, you know, being important initially as an African and then, of course, when... Um, the offsprings are recognized into the community uh even if it 's a discriminatory community. then you have a sense of false consciousness that you're that my brother was talking about and so the you know uh the the color of one's skin as a black person does not as you know uh throughout the world does not necessarily uh represent or mean or suggest uh a consciousness of being black that of course is a process um and uh and for for Those who are, um, you know, the byproducts of the trans-Saharan slave trade, that's where it comes from. So that that kind of lays the legacy of uh, the trans-Saharan slave trade, despite its brutality, complicating the issue of uh, race and at the same time allowing, uh, believe it or not, for a form of upward mobility and status. And so over time, you'll see this false consciousness develop. Um, I think that that kind of can give you, it has had uh, other legacies as well. But I, I do want to emphasize that uh, we also have to focus not so much on the trans uh, legacy, but to not let the leaders of African countries, including, let's say, in Somalia and elsewhere where I also lived, to get away with something. And what they're getting away with something is that they are using new forms of constructing racism. Uh, That 4, which I've visited many times, for example, is not really a place where the trans-Saharan slave trade had that kind of effect. But rather, it is uh, the colonial government that I said that codified the different groups among tribes. And then the post-colonial government, who in their weakness to put down insurgency, decided to... Uh, let a man called Musa Hilal who committed homicide out of prison, gave him you know hundreds of thousands of US dollars and you know and, and rifles, uh, and told him to go and execute and uh, and do this uh, kind of earthquash uh, policy. I, I want us to be clear that a lot of the racism we're talking about now in the Horn and elsewhere is a modern creation, and we have to uh, really focus on, the particular individuals and outsiders who have constructed this, as well, you know, the, the, the trans-Saharan legacies context is important, right? But at the same time, it's important not to um, let uh, let you know the leaders who have uh, utilized this uh, um, to get off the hook. Otherwise, we won't understand similar processes that occur in other parts of Africa where the trans-Saharan slave trade. And never even uh, transpired, okay? And that is uh, really important for us to focus on who's the real perpetrator in this modern age so that we can try to come up with a resolution just as the grassroots movements, whether it is uh, in Sudan Burkina Faso, in Mali, in the DRC, who have risen up in, in persistent protest to address these issues in a modern sense. and And, that, and I think that's very important for us to keep in mind.
1: D- Can d- I- d- Richard, I just wanted to see whether he had a follow-up. D-
15: well, that, I, I appreciate that answer. And before the professor leave, if he could just, you know, say, where do we go from here? Because with these two two generals fighting, and the, it's like the people are, you know, hopeless. So, you know, before you leave, you know, tonight, just... Where do we go from here? And thank you, thank you so much. Thank
1: you for your contribution. Thank you.
9: And that was basically my 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 question. I wanted to, if it, if it's okay, to kind of follow up from the perspective of, of particularly African Americans. I'm really interested um, in our political um, participation as it relates to. Uh, being um, some type of support with uh, Darfur or is creating some alliance and definitely being able to communicate to young people here um, how what is being done by young people there has not only impact but should influence. And so I I was wondering, is there any thought, um, you know, that you could offer in that vein?
10: Yeah, sure. Well, the first thing I I would – uh, tell um, African Americans is to really understand that Sudan is a black country. I know you know sometimes you got to begin with the kind of the the, the main point. Um, and, and, uh, and as an African American, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so you know, and I, of course I teach Africa, but uh, you know I owe all my career to African Americans. Uh, but here, what I'm trying to say is that there's a complication. Um, African Americans, because of the, the this history that I said, and also because of its uh, multiple identities, you know, uh, they may be African American who care, you know, what's going on out there. But, you know, what is this country that some one day it's Arab, one day it's African, one day it's black? It is called Al-Sudan, which means in Arabic the black country. It is the home of Nubia and Kush, and uh, it represents uh, blackness in its all, all its diversity. And uh, And I mentioned the youth movements who take are taking it very seriously and taking the guidance, including the nonviolent struggle, from, from their black uh, brothers and sisters and their history in America. I want black people to understand that Sudanese are black people, first and foremost. and um, That should not be a question anymore. It's been a question too long, and this is, it got black elites in D.C. confused about even the Darfur situation, and it put black Americans on the wrong side. I'm going to put it plain, you know, that's really important. Uh, after that, I think it's very, very important to really understand that Sudanese now are part and parcel of the black diaspora. You have Sudanese neighbors now. You have Sudanese, uh, you know, um, people in your school. You have Sudanese down the street, you know. Uh, those, y- you, you can help them just like, you know, you help Jamaican, your Jamaican brothers. Like I know my Jamaican brothers and sisters have helped me in my life, you know. But, you know, and so, uh, and I've tried to do, to do the same. You don't have to be in Sudan. You don't have to be elsewhere uh, to to know a Sudanese uh, right next door. You know, in your school, in your university, in your workplace. You know, talk to them about it and, and show them your solid- solidarity because it's a situation where uh, Sudanese need as much solidarity as possible. Because the real scenario for the future is to make to to enrich and continue to support. Sudanese civil society and the young people and the resistance committees. So Sudanese in the diaspora are raising with their uh, black brothers and sisters in New York uh, thousands of dollars to send to the resistance committees. Uh, the Sudanese, um, you know, doctors' union. Um, is uh, working with, um, you know, the uh, black uh, Black doctors' union in Canada. And uh, we've raised some money for the Sudanese, uh, you know, a doctor's union that, it, that sends money and aid directly uh, to people actually working in Sudan. So I, I understand more than uh, most how devastating this conflict is, but it's very important for black folk and black Americans to understand that this conflict is one that can be explained, Every war in Africa actually ends, and Sudanese society will endure and survive. Um, But that, uh, uh, by even by itself, but you know, just like in Rwanda, just like in Sierra Leone, just like in Liberia. But this is the time. For black Americans to be like, you know what, I wish I was giving uh, when the Liberia conflict occurred. Maybe, you know, uh, their, their, their young people would be in a strong position now. Maybe I, would, I should have shown more solidarity to my brothers and sisters during the awful war in Sierra Leone. And why didn't I push harder for intervention in Rwanda when, all, when a million of, uh, you know, black folks were being killed? You know, what is my role in, 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 uh, in, in Congress? I mean, do I have a voice? Right now, uh, the United States is taking the conflict in Sudan very seriously, very seriously. It's the third most important foreign policy, uh, 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 priority. Yet black Americans are not intervening to give their voice. Um, you know, that's really key. Already, uh, the, for the, you know, Blinken, um, Anthony Blinken has, uh, you know, sanctioned individuals in Sudan. Uh, the United Nations Secretary General said it's the worst conflict uh, in, in on the planet. Uh, but, you know, we need black American voices uh, to intervene because in this country, in this situation, unlike the Middle East and elsewhere, you know, people will listen. You know, uh, senators and congressmen will listen to black Americans because there's no one else speaking. You know, when black Americans say, we want this war stopped you need to do something more about it uh, they will listen because the, the you know uh, it doesn't have other special interests competing with it and so i'd like you know to i know people are busy but i like the black americans if when they're thinking about foreign policy right now to make sudan the top priority to make sudan so when they're you know voting when they're going to con- you know know their congressmen or even local officials you know you know ask a question about sudan just ask a question about Sudan. You know, you you you'll be surprised how much that would help Sudanese and and the youth in the country. Thank you.
1: Um, let me uh, go, let's go to uh 215,
8: 215 Good evening brother Elliot. Good evening brother Richard. And oh, yeah. Assalamu alaikum uh, uh, Dr. Madani. How you doing my brother?
10: Alaykum <laughs> wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. How are you doing?
8: I'm doing fine. Our praise be to Allah. You know, Dr. Badani, I just want to say this to you know I'm, I'm so I I'm just so filled up right now that Brother Elliot and Brother Richard have you on tonight because you have such a vast knowledge of Africa Islamic African connection and and just you know African geopolitical affairs I mean I think you know you, you 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 speak from a perspective that is so vast you know what I'm saying it's just and it's just beautiful because you know oftentimes Dr Madani you know America's Always pretty much on the wrong side when it comes to you know, foreign policy throughout the Islamic African world. They are always on the wrong side, you know. Like you said about, like you said about that. For how you said how British intervention with the colonialism, you know, helped cause a lot of that. Was uh, the main reason why all that happened over there. And uh, you know, like you said, the split between the, the Muslims and the non-Muslims and, and everything like that. The Arabs and the blacks and everything. The British intervention. And you know, throughout history. Doctor McDonough, you see America has always, like I say, been the wrong side. For example, you look go back to the history, uh, when you look at what happened with the, in Iran, which, Persia, which is called Iran, when the when the people elected Mohammed Mossadegh, the United States intervened and, and over overthrow a democrat elected leader. Which they always talk about how they about democracy, but they overthrew their democ they didn't like like him because they didn't want I guess to wanna to play ball with them. You seen it in Maurice Bishop, Reagan and them had them They'll put the things in place to have this man assassinated, Maurice Bishop and Grenada. You know what I mean? You can just, you can just go on and on and see they're always on the wrong side. Cuba, everything. I mean, they always on the wrong side of history. And that's why it's, like you said, so important, like you just said, to Brother Ellen and Brother Richard, and for the time, for the Wicked List on for black people to get involved. Because, see, the problem that you that we face is, in black people in America, uh, Dr. Medani, when we see about what's going on in Sudan, is our black leadership. They don't get us involved. You know what I mean? They... They so busy supporting the racist resign this murder regime in Israel and not even worry about our people and whether it's our people what's our people in Palestine or our people in the Sudan, they're so busy with the head of Israel's behind. You know what I mean, supporting the racist re- regime. So they they're on the wrong side. If they was more conscious, they could get, they get black people have more of a voice to speak and have more of a voice as an input to help stop the the, the, the stuff that's going on in Sudan. But unfortunately, Doctor our Congressional Black Caucus, they just you know, they just they lacking, man. They just there this- Disgrace to be honest, you, plain and simple, Dr. Madani. They're a disgrace, and they keep our people less informed. That's why you don't, that's why the average black person in this country don't know the, the vast of what's going on over there in the Sudan. If they did, they would be more active in calling for the, for that war to be stopped. You see, it's the lack of failure of black leadership, Madani, that plays a big role in, 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 in black people not having the voice that they should have. That's what I'm, oh, you understand what I'm saying, Dr. Madani?
10: Yeah, yeah. I'm- Absolutely, absolutely. I understand very well. Um, I think that, uh, well, I mean, like the reason I said I'm African-American is because, number one, I am, and, and I can be critical of my community, the black American mm-hmm. community as well. But what I'm also trying to say is that um, one of the things that that uh, uh, you know we can talk about the black uh, you know caucus, of course. But one of the things is that um, that is happening that that I want us to take seriously is the revival of um, you know um, Afrocentric thought of Pan Africanism. Now I teach African politics, uh, and I have for about thirty years. I can tell you something's happening. Young black people, young black Americans, are interested once again in Pan Africanism. They are okay. now. The problem has been that there's been a period where it has been discounted. Right, mm-hmm. that generation was too idealistic. That generation is too radical. That that's not workable. You know, we got to be practical. Um, yes. You know, uh, and what's happened is that that's been it's been taken out of the curriculum of, for for young black people. You know, people. You know, stop st- When I was uh, younger, right, I'm reading about Malcolm i'm reading Du Bois. i'm reading Nkrumah. everyone was doing that you know what i'm talking about right yes and yes. and so there was there's been a period you know so um it's you know we can talk about the black caucus we can talk about this but i want to hone in on your point about you know um that kind of lack of knowledge you know uh, you know you talk to black americans about sudan they may they may be sympathetic but they think it's too complicated well it's not exactly. too complicated Yeah, right? I mean, I just explained it to you in about half an hour. And Mm -hmm. what, so what we need to do is uh, go back because my young black students, African and black American and black Canadian, they, they, they keep emailing me saying, professor, where, where, where Pan-African is? You know, um, and mm-hmm. you know, we want you to, you know, uh, I helped them do an article, uh, they publish a, a journal called Uhuru, and they said, thank you, Professor, for um, allowing us to do a Pan-Africanist journal. These are young black people in their 20s, okay? So we need to help them to, uh, to, to be with them and support the revivalism of Pan-Africanism in the curriculum. And that's not about Congress. That's about schools. That's about home. That's about enjoyment. You know, it's not just black Americans, you know, helping Africans. Mm-hmm. I, I want black Americans to know, just like it did in the past, Africans can help you, you know. You know, knowing about Africa is a beautiful thing. Traveling to Africa is a beautiful thing. You know what Africans are the most generous people. And yes, so, they are. you know, uh, you, you know, they are, you know, when when push comes to shove. But it's not just what black am- Americans do um, to, for, for Africans or for people in Sudan, it's what the, the Pan-Africanist leaders envisioned from the beginning. And that is what Africa can do to you, you know, just like yes, the, sir. you know, Harlem, ha- Harlem Renaissance poets and mm-hmm. everyone else, uh, you know, and that's how the black conscious arose, the pleasure, the joy and the nourishment that Africa can provide for black Americans. We need to return to that because that's what young people want, you know, yeah, so he, we focus, right. we focus on that first.
8: And I agree with you, Dr. With that, agree with you because, like I said, uh, like I said, like I said before, it's important. Like I say, we as Black people make sure, sure our children get that because you know, in the schools, you got a, a pretty much a ban on anything. You got these politicians, both Democrat and Republican, with a book ban in the books and ban of any kind of, you know, cultural. A thought so, it's definitely important that we emphasize whether whether we have, whether we have to use the churches, the mosques, the masjid, the synagogues. We have to make sure important that our young people have that voice. So, I, I definitely agree with you on that. And uh, lastly, wow. and, and lastly, Dr. Madani, again, like I said, uh, you know, our people definitely need to be, uh, need to understand how, how to make that connection. And you're right, I went, I had the honor of visiting Ghana. And back in 2000, I, a I visited Ghana, and I visited Egypt. And you're absolutely right, Dr. Madani, I did, the, the, our people over there treated me so so nice over there, man. It was like, like welcome home, brother, you know, this and that. You know what I mean? I was like, you know, I, I, when I was in Cairo, Egypt, but, you know, you, you ever see that iconic picture where Malcolm prayed in a mosque over there in Cairo? Well, I prayed in that same mosque that Malcolm prayed in. I felt Malcolm spirit when I was in that mosque over there in Cairo. So you're right, our people were so welcoming over there, you know. And, you know, it, it's, just, it's just so, and, 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 last, and my last point is, that you know, when I was over in Egypt, so the Egyptian children, and it was of different shades, you know, like some of the lighter ones, some were, and they asked me, they said, brother, do you support, and that's why I say, they in tune was what's going to ask me, did I, as a black American, did I support this, the United States policy, supporting Israel, and I said, hell no, I don't, you know what I mean, they was happy to hear me, says the black man, they, they, really, they it warmed their ears, so that they, it warmed their, their spirits, Dr. Medina, let, when I let them know, no, no, I don't agree with that, you know what I mean, so I mean, so you're right, that connection has to be there, and and, 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 and getting our young people involved is definitely important, Dr. Medina. So I want to thank you in close. I just want to thank you for your for your time tonight. And, and Elliot, put me on mute and I'll listen to the rest of the show because I, I love your vast knowledge of, 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 of the connection in, between Africa and Islam and everything else and stuff, the, between Arabs and non arabs So I just want to thank you for your time, Dr. Medani. Thanks, Brother Elliot. Thank, thank you, sir. Thank you, you, sir. My right. pleasure. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thanks All for, the best
1: you. Thanks for your contribution. Thank you. So You're welcome. Let's go to Toronto, Canada. Toronto. Hello,
11: can you hear me?
1: Yes, sir, loud and clear.
11: Uh, uh, what's the doctor, what's your name? I, I'm just t- tuning in. Oh,
10: oh. My, my name is.
1: Uh, uh, go ahead. Khalid Basafa Madani. No, I'm
11: just.
1: He's he's the chair oh. of the African Studies Program, associate professor of political science and Islamic studies at McGill University in Montreal.
11: Oh, Montreal. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm 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 living in Toronto, and I'm originally from uh, uh. From well, I was born in Louisiana, but I wanted to say that I want to ask you a question, uh, and then ask ask ask, ask your question, and then I want to say something. Uh, who was the first leader of, of 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 the Sudan in 1956? I think his name was Ishmael Al Azman. Am I correct in saying that? Uh, um, uh, Ismail Al Ashari, Ismail Al Ashari. Yeah. Oh, oh, uh, he, uh, I'm sorry. He was a. Uh, uh, go ahead. I cut you off. So, sorry. Uh,
10: th- that was the serve. as the first uh, democratic elected leader, and then the yeah. first military leader was Ibrahim Aboud.
11: Well, the first uh, 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 democratically elected leader, he was almost as dark as Kwame Nkrumah. You know, a lot of people. I uh, think they were. They, they, they were. Uh, they, their independence was on January 1st, 1956, and a lot of people. Always talk about Ghana being the first, uh, I guess, sub-Saharan African country. Uh, that's that whole division. I never believed in that division thing between North and, uh, you know, sub-Saharan, sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, I wanted to ask you, you know, ab- ab- about him. Why, why isn't it that uh, people uh, uh, don't talk about him? Oh
10: no, well. People talk about him a lot uh in
11: sudan um, uh, but uh, oh, oh, i'm talking about here i'm talking here i' I'm, I'm, I'm glad 'm glad to hear about sudan of course oh uh, about well
10: they, they don't talk about him because people are so um focused on uh, the military dictatorships in Sudan. I mean, they're, they're more, you know, people are focused, how am I gonna put it in a short? People focus, and you can, you can correct me if I'm wrong, people are more easily focused on the bad news coming out of Africa than the good news. Haven't you noticed that you hear about Muammar Ghazafi, you hear about Bashir, you hear about the militia uh, leader Himeti, you don't hear about Ismail Asari, you don't hear about uh, Nkrumah as much as before um, uh, Sekuture, you don't hear about Amilcar Cabral you don't hear about the people who, uh, you know um, whether you like their politics or not as a professor, I like, I like their ideas. These were deeply smart, intellectual pan-Africanist uh, Ismail Asari was one of them. He was someone who um, not only was the first uh, elected leader in Sudan, but he was the leader who came from an elite family, defected from it. It's one of the families that the British colonialists uh, tried to, uh, to, to utilize. And he decided that, you know, we cannot uh, have a political party that is based on those traditional elites that were dominated by the British colonialists. Instead, he formed a party of, of educated people, uh, Um, You know, from the universities, from, you know, doctors, lawyers, and he felt that that uh, would be a a progressive way to actually uh, administer and rule Sudan that would be independent from uh, external powers. That's why you don't hear about him here, you know. You don't hear about uh, Nkrumah's uh, work with pan-Africanism, you know. You just hear about his failures economically in Ghana itself leading to his fall and demise. Um, you don't hear about right. Jamal al-Nasif uh, except, you know, that he failed in the 1967 war, right? Uh, we have to go back to people's ideas, you know. Um, and um, and I, I say this personally because, um, you know, W.E. Du Bois in 1962 uh, contacted my own grandfather and asked him to, to work with him on the Africa, uh, African Encyclopedia. Uh, W.E. Du Bois had a vision that he never completed, and that was to have... African Americans and Black uh, people working together with Africans in order to have an encyclopedia about uh, Africans and Black people all over the world. We need to return to those ideas. That's why you don't hear about them. But I hope that you um, are able to tell people, hey, you know, I know about the bad news. Did anything good come out of there? You know, or were any p- smart people there, and what's their legacy? Because people in Sudan understand Ismail al Asiri's legacy, I was just in Egypt talking to his uh, cousin and his daughter, by the way. <laughs> so uh, I want mm-hmm. you to keep that those 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 people in mind, not only in Sudan but throughout Africa. It's not all bad news; it's never been, and that's not our legacy.
11: Let me tell you this. Then I'm going to hang up. I was in Ghana, and I was trying to get a visa to go to. Uh, 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 to Togo, and the brother that was looking at, at at my passport, he bust out he burst out laughing, and he started laughing, and I was and I was looking at him. you know, like, what's so funny? He says. He says, brother. He says, you know what you need to do is you need to take this passport, throw it away, and just stay in here and live with us. He said, because you know you 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 look like one of us. He said, but. It's the only thing you can't do. You can do whatever you want to do, as long as you don't kill anybody. If you kill somebody, you right. got to go. But other, as long as you don't kill anybody, as long as you don't kill anyone, you can stay here forever. <laughs> that's that's what he. That's that. He, but he told me, take that passport, throw it away. He looked at the passport, he he fell out laughing.
10: <laughs> well, I, what he's trying to tell you is that the Africans understand that the difficulties and pain in living in primarily white societies and racist societies. So what he's he's telling you in his African way that you're always welcome to come if you want to feel better about yourself and if you don't have yes, you know don't have to worry yes. about other people. That's why African Americans have always gone to Africa, and they deserve to go to their continent when, whenever they want. So when they land in the airport, you know people will be just like them, you know, and every black American deserves that experience at least once in their
1: life. (laughs) Thank you for your contributions. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Let's go to, let's go to New York city. Greetings
16: brothers. This is brother Maurice. How are you doing today? How are you, sir? Good. Good. Uh, I was just thinking about it. I was listening to the professor and again, you know, um, I want to thank you and brother Richard and the time for awakening, uh, the show but you know always bringing on intelligent people like the professor to break down the things that we don't understand. I thought it was very important that he he made a statement when he talked about Sudan is he said it's African you know it's black people there. And I always wondered to myself as I even listened to Doctor Ben and other people talk about the trips that they took. A lot of people would be going to like like the the brother from Philadelphia said from they would go to Egypt or they would go to Ghana. But they don't do a lot of traveling or people mentioning anything going to the Sudan. And it made me wonder, because I remember from one of my teachers telling me, he was like, there's more pyramids in the Sudan than they are in, in Egypt. Um, I don't understand why it, there's never anybody ever talking about traveling to the Sudan. And I said, maybe is that is, is that because there's a narrative that is not black, that, that um there's a misunderstanding about that? I'm just wondering, Professor, about that.
10: I think so. I I think there is, you know, the narratives are very important and how we, you know, uh, absorb information as black people is important. We should always, just always absorb everything with a question. Um, There is some uh, good reasons for it because the colonial experience in Sudan is a little bit different. It was once uh, both uh, uh, colonized uh, at the same time by the British but administered by the Egyptians. And it also has a very, very close experience you know, tie to the Arab world, which, uh, you know, that, uh, we are also very proud of, you know, as people from the global south because of our very close kin relations, uh, across the Red Sea, you know, uh, and there's no reason, uh, to, uh, shy away from that as well. I mean, that's a kind of an objective, uh, you know, a reason. Um, Ali Mazrui, the great African uh, political scientist from Kenya, uh from Mombasa Kenya who passed away a few years ago who's one of our best scholars in of Africa and in in the black world uh said uh, always used to joke with me and with everyone else uh, saying that Af- uh Sudan has a triple heritage it is african muslim and it's arab and that's a reality. Uh, and that is something that uh, it's very important for black Americans to understand. Um, you know, we are, as black Americans are too, uh, coming from uh, multiple heritages. Um, and in the case of Sudan, it's uh, that triple heritage. You can say that about every African country as well. That doesn't exclude, and we have to rethink what we mean by blackness in that sense in Africa. That doesn't exclude that these are countries that are not uh, foundationally linked uh, to the black world. Um, and, uh, and that really is important. And, and we're linked uh, through history, through ideas, uh, and we're linked uh, through a real sense of solidarity, and we're linked in opposition to imperialism, colonialism, and racism. And so, uh, you know, understanding that Africans come from multiple heritage, but they're still black, is what I'd like black Americans to really uh, take to heart. Because then when they hear, oh, this Sudanese is talking, you know, that he's an Arab, whatever, um, you know, understand that uh, in that situation he is experiencing uh, this other heritage he's got. And finally, I want to say that uh, black Americans are teachers. You know, I think black You know, as as African-Americans sell themselves short because they don't understand that they um, created, originated and consolidated the very idea of the possibilities and progress and beauty of blackness. You know, you have to share that with Africa, African. You can't go and 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 you can't, you know, think that Africans are going to get the gift, that gift before you give it to them. If you if you know what I mean, that's you know, that's one of the many contributions that African-Americans have given to the black world and to Africa. But you got to share it. You know, people, you know, people don't don't not everyone knows it. I I was taught, 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 given that gift as a as a young person by black American friends when I was in the university. You know, Uh, I'm talking to you like this because black Americans taught me. You know, you got to teach Africans about, you know, what what it is being black and why it's uh, such a great thing for them. Nothing to, to, it doesn't take away from them; it gives them. So, uh, I want to just emphasize that for
16: you. One of, one of the things I do want to just mention, Professor, that's concerning me, is that I see a lot of uh, black professionals and intellectuals from America on the continent of Africa, and they're really pushing this narrative. Uh, this uh, uh, of, about capitalism and stuff. And and I don't want people to look at the continent, because remember, it's a continent, it's not a country. A lot, a lot of people make that mistake. That, that, that capitalism will be the savior for Africa. We've seen that here in America, and we've seen that on the other end of the process, there's always somebody that has to suffer. And we were the people that had to suffer. So I'm, I'm concerned, as, as I'm listening to a lot of people uh, these, these uh, organizations that are you know that are participating in the goa and all these organizations and meetings that are happening with the united states with african nations and things and the, the 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 narrative that i see on tv specifically pertaining to BRIC um and how they're trying to push back against the the american dollar and things of that nature i just you know i'm concerned that capitalism is trying to get It's already got its foothold. We already see what it's doing in the Sahel and how these countries are fighting back. But I'm I'm concerned that we have black people from America going to Africa preaching that philosophy of capitalism, and I'm just concerned about the impact on the youth there.
10: Um, That's a very important uh, point. It's a difficult one because um, I'm not going to say that it's a you because you know this is a big struggle. uh, Because of... um, uh, what what we call energy transition that is happening. It's always been a problem, but now Africa, as you know, um, for good or bad, is the source of great wealth, great energy, uh, and, and potential uh, that is unbridled in the sense that every country in the world, particularly the rich global north or rather industrialized countries, are looking to Africa for their future. This is the case. Same case for the one of the, the richest countries in the Gulf region that are uh, interested in the future of um, you know economic diversification and are looking uh, you know uh, at uh, at Africa for land and for energy for all manner of resources. So I want to just emphasize how serious your question is. You know that you know. So I'm not going to sugarcoat that in any way uh, uh, at all. Um, I share your concern. Um, I think that that uh, has to be uh, really kind of, uh, you know, emphasized. And at the same time, um, the only way to um, uh, get get through that is to focus on uh, groups in Africa, and others, many who understand that. Uh, they don't get uh, the headlines and they don't get the access to the kind of uh, scholars that you're talking about. Um, but uh, those are the kind of uh, people in Africa. Many of them that are fi- fighting this kind of, uh, you know, free market capitalism uh, sold to them, you know, without any qualifications whatsoever. But a lot of times, of course, they have their own uh, interest as well. Um, as a professor, I guess all I can say, because that's not a problem to be solved easily. Um, I think once again, just just like I said, we have to. Um, Uh, Return to pan-Africanism, we also have to return to a critique of capitalism that is accessible to people. Um, And that's really important. If you look at, if you get a chance to read my book, I uh, I, I, I discuss in length the relationship between neoliberalism and militancy and terrorism, uh, rather than Islam being uh, the reason. But it, you know, it took me a while to do that. But uh, what I mean is that it's very important to offer an alternative to what is going on in Africa, what, or rather, what these people are saying. So we need to return to a crit- uh, critique of capitalism, and we need to make that, uh, um, you know, uh, accessible to people in Africa and also here. And uh, as, and I can tell you that there are many African uh, scholars who uh you will be glad to know uh are very much critical of what's going on they write about it they talk about it so um i know just as you read about brick le- read about the south african professors in south african universities who are critical and trying to fight that or the opposition party uh the land party in uh, and freedom party in south africa the main opposition party that is is uh, is is scaring the African National Congress because they're critical of capitalism uh, and uh, and and promoting land rights in Africa. So every time you hear that bad news, you gotta do that extra work and go find that African and that black scholar who's doing something opposite. Uh, that would be my advice to you. I know it's not uh, <laughs> uh, sufficient, but I think we need to, you know, need to do that.
16: Brother, whenever you you present a starting part, that is sufficient. It's up to us to take the take the next step to educate ourselves. To you know, and I'll say the last thing. This last thing, brothers, I don't want to dominate the conversation. Is that, you know, I was, um, you know, um, the brothers from the uh, um, uh, uh, Maurice uh, Carney and them were celebrating Patrice Lumumba Day the other day, and you know, I went back and was watching um, the film of him, and when they captured him and drove them off in a Jeep and, you know, and, and I'm not going to lie to you. Tears fell in my, my eyes because I could see somebody that was caught in such a trick bag with so many people around him and stuff. And that's the fear that I have for us is that we got so many voices uh, speaking to the continent of Africa that, you know, they're going to those people that were originally that have a love for the, for the continent and the love for our people will be taken away from us. So I just wanted to say that in the, i just, and I'll get off, you know, peace, truth, and love to you, brothers.
1: Hey, thank you thank for your you, contribution, brother. brother. Dr. Madani. Oh, oh, Richard, go ahead. Because I, you know no, what? No, I, I was got, uh, got, just going to... You got sidetracked from your
9: question. That was a while ago. But go ahead. No, no, no. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'll just i say this, um, Dr. Madani. I, I'm looking if, uh, at some point for you to come back so that we can explore more of your book. I've been going through um some things and it's a lot more that you did do that I'm interested in 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 how you've laid it out as it relates to just was that um Egypt, um Somalia and what was that? Uh Sudan. So <clears throat> I'm looking forward to <laughs>
10: Well, that's not a requirement for for me to come back on your show. I'll come I'll come back anytime to talk about anything you want. It doesn't have to be about my point. <laughs> but, uh, <this> is, uh, <laughs>
9: Thank you. So, uh, Especially that labor migration and um, the trust economy. I think that that's a, a another part of the social network that we need to um, share because that's one thing that. Um, I see as it relates to the youth and as it relates to different ethnic groups that they have the ability to have a what you call a trust economy. And I think that that's important to unpack and, and, and learn from, if you don't mind, as it relates to Somalia specifically.
10: Well, I like that co- concept very much. You know, I wonder if we can't, uh, you know, that book has a lot of uh discussion on militancy but mostly as you said it really is about and you can tell by my discussion with you if you read the book closely you'll see that it's really about how despite uh, against all odds africans come together in ways that, that people can't even imagine based on trust networks and that's what the book is about um so if i can write you know about you know, wars and terrorism and then foreground um, how actually, despite all of these, uh, and of course, global capitalism and how despite all of these forces, Africans remain, uh, you know, committed um, to these trust networks. Uh, that make them survive and in, in some cases thrive. And so um, I think that that concept of trust is something that, of course, I learned from black Americans as well. And that is something that we need to get young people to think about it more. You know, what does it mean to trust each other and what do we get out of it? You know, um, just that simple question, especially for young black people, to be like, you know, why have we lost lost trust in each other, and and uh, and how can we rebuild that? You know, what you know, what what would what would we gain from building the kind of trust that uh, that our uh, you know our mentors put so much hard work uh, in in building? You know, because uh, it didn't come for free. Uh, so that would be a nice uh, thing too. Yes. Uh,
1: to inform people Dr. Madani, uh, before you leave, uh, you, you can uh, the floor is yours. You can tell people how to get uh, any of your books, uh, how to contact you if they wish to, or, uh, if you're on social media or anything. Uh, uh, the floor is yours.
10: Sure. Yeah. Well, um, my book is free. I I, I changed a contract with the with editors, so I wanted to make it. Uh, it's open access. All you need to do is Google it, and it'll come down for free because I wanted people in Africa to be able to read it. <laughs> so I, you know, so I think that's what uh, us African black scholars do these days because we know people are not going to, you know, buy such expensive books. So if you're if anyone's interested listening, they can just Google the title, it and all of it will come down and they they can read it for free and um, my articles I have a, a website that's just called um, Khalid Madani, um, uh, dot com my first and second name and then dot com and that's my uh, uh, my website it has my contact information there and uh, I all my articles and writings are there including a, the letter from W. Du Bois if people are interested uh, to read uh, Du Bois uh, letter um, but I want to conclude if you don't mind with Sudan and um You know, just, uh, um, you know, encourage people to read about it. Uh, Believe it or not, the more that it's in in the news, the better it is for Sudanese. And um, the resistance committees and others are trying very hard. So any way that anyone can um, help... You know, Sudan. Whether through you know speaking about it, fundraising. um, um, I am on Twitter and Facebook, especially on Twitter. Uh, We 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 do a lot of fundraising for Sudan to send to people there, and that's uh, the the best thing we do is to try to maintain, you know, and help people um, as they go through this uh, this horrible uh, war. So, um, but mostly just to get the word out on Sudan. So. uh, People can um, can keep focused and, and
1: support uh, support uh, our people there. Douglas, before you leave us, uh, if you say, if you email me that link, I'll make sure that when we put the program up for podcast, the link is uh, is along with it, so the people can not only hear uh, what we talked about tonight, but they can download the book. But I'll, 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 oh yeah and it has
10: yeah it has all my interviews there are many many that i upload, i put there so if they if people want to uh, know more details about Sudan or i've done interviews with uh, on uh, you know african television we we do interviews together on pan africanism and that kind of stuff is all there on the website. Just a, a quick way for busy people to learn about Sudan and africa they can i'll send you that website so do it. I know Great. people are, have a busy day, but uh, they can just click and, and uh, Uh, during
1: their lunch hour. And one other thing, one other request, uh, Dr. Madani. Um, Any of the youth organizers in the Sudan that you're familiar with that want to come on and share with us uh, uh, their struggles, uh, some of the things that they would like to uh, talk about in reference to organizing. I know, like you said, it's not good to talk about everything. But some of the things that they would want to share, the floor is open to them and and I'll be in touch with you
10: please do i think that it it uh, I'll, I'll I'll see about that but I, there are definitely organizers uh, my friend who had to leave who are in Egypt they're in America they they just left the war and those would be great people because they just came from there and uh it's safer for them to be able to speak to you. So, uh, you know, I'll send you those names. I think that would be good
1: too. <laughs> Great. All right. Thank you, sir, for being thank with you. us. Talk to you again soon. Okay. Thank you very much.
9: Hey, right, you bye. take bye. care now. You too. Bye.
1: Listen, we'll be right back.
6: Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today 484-268-9836.
3: The digital plantation. IB2Me.com IBB2Me.tv, 2 mestore are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety. abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. Black Power. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your Global commit you Black family to join your interconnected, commit to you black communities. Escape the digital plantation now. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, store. We are here for you. Escape the think, digital yeah, plantation. A new
15: era, a new phase of the struggle where we have moved from a struggle for decency, which characterized our struggle for 10 or 12 years to a struggle for genuine equality, and this is where we are getting the resistance because there was never any intention uh, to go this far. People were reacting to Bull Connor and to Jim Clark rather than acting in good faith
4: for the realization of genuine equality. Do you think white people in this country, and I'm talking about non segregation, as people devoid or thinking they're devoid of racism. Do you have any idea of what they want the Negro to be in America? I think the vast majority of white Americans
15: uh, will go but so far. It's a kind of installment plan for equality. And uh, they're always looking for an excuse uh, to go but so far.
4: And know that this problem needs to be solved and we can't keep That.
12: Whites are expert game players in their contests to maintain absolute power. One of their time-honored gimmicks is to point to individual blacks who've achieved recognition. But look at Ralph Bunch. Think about Lena Horne or Mary Anderson. Look at Jackie Robinson. They made it as one of those who has made it. I would like to be thought of as an inspiration to our young but I don't want them lied to. Name them for me. Examples of blacks who made it. For virtually everyone you name, I can give you a sordid piece of factual information on how they have been mistreated, humiliated. Not being able to fight back is a form of severe punishment.
2: I come here tonight and plead with you. If the Negro is to be free, he must move down into the inner resources of his own soul and sign with a pen and ink of self-asserted manhood his own emancipation proclamation. <laughs> Don't let anybody take your manhood.
12: an Awakening is a proud part of the Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black digital and podcasting platform.
1: Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's 942. Uh, Richard, you know, it was an interesting conversation with our guest this evening. Oh, yes, uh, definitely helpful. Uh, You know, he only has reiterated with several uh, Folks, professors that teach on the continent and here reiterate what they've been saying, Richard, mm-hmm. and and he said it that these, these types of organizations and uh, 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 organiz- organizational gatherings, I'm sorry, have been going on in several African countries. You heard him say it, Richard, right? And it's based on a resurgence of Pan Africanism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now here. In the United States, you have some of our people running around talking about pan-Africanism as dead. Right. So there's something wrong with that picture. When the youngest population on the face of this planet that is black, it's a resurgence of that on the continent. And here in the diaspora, you've got a percentage of people that's running around talking about these values which come from our people. They weren't European values imposed on them. These values that come from our people is dead. Mm. So I'm just putting that out there for our people to consider because you hear some voices among black people repeating this, this type of stuff. So consider some of these men that are active, not only teaching, but watching some of these young activists in several of these countries, you heard him talking about the New Canada, the, uh, the, the blacks that are living there with the same response. You heard him, Richard. Right. So, you know, that's something for our audience to consider. Because some of these conversations you might not hear on other black media, and, and I'm talking about popular black media, and these conversations need to be had. Period. To offset some of this foolishness and propaganda that you may see on the eleven o'clock news, or on some of those uh, talking head shows that come on on Sunday, on the different networks, Richard. Before we go, you know, he made mention of something earlier when he talked about the vestiges of colonialism mm. that have been left, and their their uh, objective was to have players working their behalf. In fact, you mentioned it on the program months ago when you read from that book and I Mm -hmm. forgot the the passage of that book that you read, uh, when they, uh, suggested that they have black people that as do, uh, that are proxy for their uh, government. Right. You remember when you talked about that, Richard and read those passages. It's uh, now, um, and I reached out to uh Dr. eric Ericana Chinobara Quio, to come on the program again. I just reached out to her today, communicated with her, because her, uh Dr. Quio, uh Professor P.L. Lumumba, and another gentleman was refused uh to speak to the young people in Ghana. Richard, you were aware of that because I think you sent me the the, the um the, uh, right. you know, the, the, uh, the statement or press release or whatever showing that they was refused entry and their students had invited them. Right. And, uh, but I see here on January 19th that somebody else wanted to talk to young people and they were welcomed in Ghana. Now keep in mind, Richard, that our guest, Dr. Uh, Madani said that the problem on the continent now not only is it the vestiges of uh, colonial rule and interference from the United States and the former colonial power, but the blacks that are in power that are operating in their behalf. You heard him say that problem there. Right. Now, let me share with the listening on is this. This is uh, January nineteenth, only a couple of days ago. The uh and this was from the uh the government website, Administrator Reagan, to highlight equity and youth leadership in visits to Mozambique and Ghana. Uh that was the head of Washington. This weekend EPA administrator Michael S. Reagan, now he's black, mm-hmm. will travel to Mozambique and Ghana to build partnerships and share solutions on a range of environmental priorities. Administrators Uh, Reagan's mission to Africa responds to President Biden's call to action at the 2022 U.S. African Leaders Summit to expand substantive and uh, meaningful partnerships with African countries, countries, institutions, and people across the continent. I'm thrilled to be representing the Biden-Harris administration on this mission to Africa to further long-standing and enduring relationships between the United States and this striving continent. The EPA Administrator Michael Reagan uh, stated, Mozambique and Ghana are important partners in our collective work to ensure that economic development and environmental protection go hand in hand. While in Africa, Administrator Reagan will also meet with youth leaders in both countries to learn about their efforts to confront global challenges uh, and environmental justice in Ghana, Administrator mm-hmm. Reagan will be joined by Derek Johnson, President and CEO of the NAACP. <clears throat> uh, Johnson states, "The NAACP applauds the administration for taking the necessary step to advance climate change on a global scale." Says Derek Johnson, uh, CEO and President. We have long advocated for the centering of black voices in all conversations about climate, as our diaspora stands to be the most impacted by the increasing extreme effects of the climate disaster the world is facing. The NAACP looks forward to supporting the cultivation of these crucial partnerships and advancing the priorities of black and frontline communities in the United States and abroad. Now, Richard... Um they're going over there supposedly to talk about climate change mm-hmm. and they're meeting with youth right and two weeks ago uh two people from the continent that are staunch activists was refused a meeting with youth right now mm-hmm. uh, I didn't know that Derek Johnson was an expert on climate change mm hmm but he's going over there representing the NAACP. Both of these men are millennials. Right. Representing the U.S. government. Now, let's keep this in mind before we, uh, I'm coming down the home stretch here. And I want to read something here. Hello? Yeah, I got it. Okay. I wanted to read something here. And this is from the, Uh, White House fact sheet, uh, the United States response to Uganda's anti-homosexual act and persistent human rights abuses. And this was December 11th, almost a month ago, a little over a month ago, uh, that this was put out. And it states uh, about the, you know, when Uganda passed those laws, that the government is putting Uganda on restricted, you know, on the restrictions. Mm-hmm.
9: Uh,
1: restricting entry to the United States on December, as of December 4th, says Anthony Bilkin. Uh, hold on a second. Let me, hold on. I'm sorry. Restricting entry to the United States uh, based on uh, uh, this visa restriction policy under section 212. The sanctions going forth on, no, on December 8th uh, by executive order uh, because of the cruel and inhumane uh, and degrading treatment and punishment of Ugandan citizens in reference to that law. These are different points under the sanction ending eligibility for the African Growth and Opportunities Act. The U.S. trade uh, representative informed the government of Uganda that they will lose eligibility for the African Growth and Opportunities benefits on that go into effect January 1st, 2024 due to gross violations of internationally recognized human rights Uh. Reducing support for the Ugandan government, uh, ending the business advisory, uh, and issuing the travel advisory. And also, um, the United States has supported uh, implementing the World Bank, uh, informing the World Bank as far as lending policies. The United States has supported the World Bank's actions to require uh, additional measures to promote equal access and benefits of bank supported projects in Uganda and protections for vulnerable groups, including the LGBTQ community. So they won't be getting loans from the World bank. Mm. All these uh, sanctions went into effect in December. Right now, according to, uh, African news, uh, a published report in African news, uh, Uganda staunchly criticized the header says Uganda accuses US of punishing uh of pushing a LGBTQ agenda using aid after a new round of sanctions. It says Uganda staunchly criticized uh, on Wednesday, December sixth, the United States' recent expansion of visa restrictions and, and other restrictions on its officials interpreting that this is an attempt by Washington to enforce an LGBTQ agenda in Africa. Uh, these new sanctions uh, unveiled earlier this week target Ugandan uh, Ugandans who are not formally identified according to the. US. They are responsible for the undermining democracy and supporting marginalized groups, including the LGBTQ. Uh, community, mm. um, speaking to Reuters, uh, the president of Uganda said, why don't they impose the same sanctions on the Middle East countries, which have the same harsh or harsher laws against LGBTQ? He said, if they desi- if they deny our visas, then we will go elsewhere to visit. There are many beautiful places to visit in the world. Now this sanction was imposed Richard based on the uh and they said that they wouldn't benefit from this um uh and l- let me pull that up again the uh the the uh the money that was coming out on on January the 1st of 2024 yeah. Now, let me, this last one, I'm going to read this one here. It says, Ghana Parliament unanimously passes an extreme anti-gay bill. This is in Ghana. The Parliament of Ghana passed an extreme anti-gay bill on Wednesday, which is set to tighten laws against the members of the LGBTQ community. Ghana's 275 members of Parliament unanimously passed a bill known as the 2021 Promotion of Appropriate sexual rights and family values bill this bill criminalizes the promotion advocacy funding and acts of homosexuality and stiffens prison terms up to 10 years in prison uh, for LGBTQ advocates moreover the bill seeks to withdraw health services from this community including HIV medication so this law has already been passed in Ghana Richard uh-huh. But we see that Michael Reagan along with Derek Johnson, have went there to tell Ghana that they will be entitled to some money, environmental money, under this same program. Right. <clears throat> Richard, uh, you could see clearly that it's strings attached. And if you have an African leader that refused admission to other African leaders to talk to the students that invited them, but opens the door to Michael Reagan and Derek Johnson to represent the United States government. What is that saying about that leader? I think that mm-hmm. kind of coincides with what uh, uh, Dr. Madani was talking about tonight on the program. Mm.
9: Yeah, it sounds, sounds like... I just wanted to
1: uh, share that, uh, you know, with the listening audience. They can kind of uh, look at, because as far as I know, they're over there now. So I guess when they get back, they'll have something to say about their trip. Mm-hmm.
9: Yeah.
1: Richard, before we leave, uh, let me give line lineup on time for the Weekly Media, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. African Perspectives from Brother Oshi. Always interesting topics and dialogues on African perspectives. That's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Later on in the week, <clears throat> on Thursday, uh, from 7 to 9, Mississippi on the Move, Brother Patrick Lumumba, and the Black Liberation Movement in Mississippi, Brother Patrick Lumumba, Brother Rodney Lowe, Dovesack, uh, Sister Crystal, all of the brothers and sisters that's involved, several hosts there, on uh, Mississippi, on the move at seven to nine on Thursdays, on Fridays from eight until time for awakening, from eight until, and on Saturdays from seven to nine. The elders of Sankofa, with Doctor Janine James as host. Then on Sunday, time for an awakening is back from seven until. I want to thank you everybody for listening to the program this evening. Lively discussion as always, and we'll be back on Friday, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. Please.
0: If you're driving through the country on a lazy afternoon, or you're watching your children play after school,